comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, Episode 73. This episode of the PKD Black Box is brought to you by Princeless Volume 1 from Action Lab Entertainment and the Lexington Toy and Comic Convention. Princeless Volume 1 by Action Lab Entertainment collects the first storyline of the critically acclaimed series by the team of Whitley and Goodwin. It follows the adventures of Princess Adrian, a princess who's tired of waiting to be rescued. Along with her guardian dragon, Sparky, they begin their own quest in an all-ages action adventure designed specifically for those who are tired of waiting to be rescued and who are ready to save themselves. As a product code of FEB120706 and is available for pre-order at your local retailer or online retailer such as Discount Comic Book Service at a nice low price. The Lexington Comic and Toy Convention is taking the Lexington Center by storm on March 24, 2012. Coming to town with almost 200 tables of comic and pop culture goodness, comics, toys, magazines, gaming, horror, anime, movies, art, music, and more. March 24th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. For more information, go to Lexington Comic Con Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor. This episode is a double feature. In the first section of this podcast, I talk with Hannibal Taboo, who is the co-owner and editor-in-chief of Complicated.com. That's complicated with a K. And he's also a weekly comics reviewer for comic book resources. Uh, He's also the author of novels such as The Crown, Ascension, currently on Amazon, and the as-yet-unpublished sequel, Far Away. He's also worked with companies such as AOL, Disney Channel, eHobbies, Next Planet Over. He's had articles published in Vibe, The Source, Rap Pages, Black Enterprise, Los Angeles Sentinel, and MTV Online. And what Hannibal and I talk about, we talk about race and comics, we talk about the lack of minorities in the comic book business at this time from a writing aspect. We talk about comic book design. We talk about the comic book business. We talk about everything under the sun we could possibly talk about within a, you know, within a short period of time. And then after that, I have a conversation with Joey Alessio of the Chemical Box Podcast as we talk about Red Tails, Haywire, other movie business, and Tangents of Plenty. You know how we do on the PKD Black Box. It's not a good podcast unless there's at least five tangents per episode. So that's you know how that is. But to our new listeners who are listening to this podcast for the first time, thank you for taking out the time to listen to the PKD Black Box, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you want to go back and listen to previous podcasts, you can check us out on the iTunes feed. Just go to iTunes and just type the PKD black box or go to hhwlod.com and get our podcast there through the rss feed all right last bit of note uh, the pkd webs the, the new pkd media website is still under construction and we are currently looking at possibly a february 27th release date for the new pkd media website so if you go to the website right now it's still the old school site hasn't been updated in forever but the new site hopefully if all goes according to plan should be february 27th had to push things back a bit production delays, but that's okay. Let's go ahead and pay one more bill, get another sponsor out real quick, and then we will get to our feature presentations. Peace. This podcast is brought to you by Kung Fu Grip Studios. Arg, Pow. Zap. Stick. That all sounds great, but how does it look? Comics just don't have the same zing when they're all written in Helvetica. You need a letterer to bring your comics to life. 
and Hassan Pashal has been a professional comic book letterer since 2007, with work appearing in Femme Force and other independent comics. Fast, affordable, and always creating, Pashal's designs are unparalleled. Visit kungfugripstudios.deviantart.com to see his work in action. For lettering that brings comics to life. kungfugripstudios.deviantart.com We tried this before, and uh, we had we had an accident with uh, my Macintosh uh, laptop. It decided to blow up on me in the midst of a of a really great conversation uh, with uh, Hannibal Taboo, who is on the line right now. He is from you may know him from either Comic Book Resources or the Complicated with a K website. And what we were talking about, we were talking about in regards uh, to we were talking about the fact that as of January. Uh, there are no more black writers in the comic book. As far as the uh, bigger publishers go, there are no black writers at all. None. Um, mm. I, I looked. I, dis- I also did additional research just, just in case. Uh, there are no additional black writers. And the only two black writers at the time were at DC. And that was with Static Shock and with Mr. Terrific. Mr. Terrific written by Eric Wallace. Um, who most of mm-hmm. us know for didn't he write episodes of uh, Eureka for Sci-Fi? He was a story editor. Yeah, he was a story editor on Eureka. Okay, mm-hmm. and Mark Bernardin, who had just got the job on Static Shock, only mm-hmm. for it to be taken away from him. Static Shock and Mister Terrific were canceled, along with books like Men of War, OMAC, Hawk and Dove, Black Hawks, and Static Shock. Now, granted, if you're going to do a Black Hawks book that kind of looks like GI Joe, I would have waited till GI Joe Retaliation came out. But that's just my personal opinion because I do like Blackhawks. Anyway, but my point is, is that how did we come to this point where there are no you know, black writers within the big two or within the bigger publishers? How did we get here? Well, that's not a hard place to get to when for literally more than 10 years at a time, definitely throughout the 80s, the only black person working in comics was Christopher Priest. He was it. Just the way of the power structure, the the way that the industry works and the way that most publishing industry works is that it's less to do with how good you are and more to do with who you know. And the people you hang out with and the people who you are comfortable hanging out with more than likely will end up being the people that you work with. And, you know, in the same way that, you know, Mitt Romney probably wouldn't know anybody who couldn't make a $10,000 bet. Uh, <laughs> the idea of actually knowing some black people to communicate is often a little bit unusual for many people in the comics world, which is not an, which is not an indictment. That's not to say that they're racist. I mean, right. I don't know any uh, Alaskans, but <laughs> I don't know any native Eskimos. That doesn't mean I'm anti-Eskimo. It just means that I have no exposure to them. Right. However, I don't live in New York City, where most of the publishing world is located. So you can draw your own conclusions from whatever that is. You know, you hit it on the head. Is like if you know someone that can get you in, and you get an in, there it is. And if you work within an industry that, and you know, which print wise, and I'll get to this later, tries to have some form of diversity on paper as far as the as far as comics content goes to a point, but on the inside, as far as the production, especially since the relaunch of um, of the you know the new DC universe, it's very insular. Mm-hmm. 
It's very and it's like that over you know, and you could say the same is kind of like that over Marvel too. It's it's very insular, and so it's hard to it's hard to break in. And I mean that's just, I mean that's not only like for you know black folks, but you know for like basically anybody that's new to the industry. Period. I mean you know if you want to break in, it's hard. And it's even more harder now than it was 15 years ago. Even with all these bigger publishers, well, like you know, Marvel, DC, Boom, IDW, Image, all the stuff. You mean to tell me, like, you would think common, common wise, that like Marvel, DC, I, I, I would figure in the back of my back of my head, if I didn't see this article, there would be at least five, maybe six writers of color, you know, of color within those two companies combined. But there's none, and like that kind of. It's shocking, but it's not surprising. And like, I'm upset because, you know, not only is there like you know a lack, you know, a lack of black writers, but these were two books where these books had issues. Let you know, Static Shock and, and Mister Terrific had issues, and mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about you know the number of issues. I'm just talking about they had issues, and and I'm, and like it hurt me because these are two of my favorite. DC superheroes. I'm not gonna lie, mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. Static Shock is, you know, to me still one of the best cartoons in the history of Kids WB. It's actually the like one of the highest rated cartoons in the history of Kids WB. Plus, the replays mm-hmm. on Cartoon Network years later were very successful. Mm-hmm. And so, and DC never learned how to capitalize on that. It never, n- never did. I mean, DC animated capitalized more on Static. More on Static Shock in one of those like Days of Future Past episodes with like a forty or fifty something year old Static than DC Comics has in the last ten years, and that's pretty much all they'll be capable of. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Warner Brothers Animation works in a very different world. They work in the world of televisions that go to everybody. DC Comics works in the direct market, which deals with the maybe two thousand retailers that are serviced by Diamond Comics distributors. That's a very different market. Yes. So yes. when you're in the comic book business, you're not selling to people; you're selling to stores. Yeah. The stores, stores that figure out whether or not they can sell to people, and the stores are predominantly run by people who, again, don't have a lot of black friends. And and, and see, and now because like with me being a, like with me being part of a publisher, a smaller publisher, I understand that now, and that took me a while to get. You know, I'm not going to lie. It took me a long while to get because, you know, we publish books and, you know, we've got content of like, you know, a diverse line of content. And we're like, okay, let's get the stores on board for this. And, you know, we get our numbers. Our numbers are okay, but they're still not where I like them to be. And I'm trying to understand also at the same time, why won't stores make that sacrifice? But I get it because the market's not great. Well, there's a variety of reasons. I mean, but here's 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 the case I normally make. Okay, and this was the case when somebody said, "Why does Marvel uh, spend money making advertising for Wolverine when they could be spending money making advertising for, well, I don't know, Gravity or or Firestar or something, right?" And there was an interview with Tom Brevoort who said something along the lines of, "If I put ten thousand dollars into marketing uh, Gravity, I might get that investment back. I might not." If I put $10,000 into marketing Wolverine, I know I'm going to get that investment back and a lot more. And as much as I enjoyed the work, as much as I enjoyed the artistic and literary value, this is a business, and I have a business to run. So I spend my money where the money is best spent. Right. In that same sense, if, for example, you're going to tell people, okay, we're going to do this new Thor book, and the retailers will be like, hmm, let me think about, about the people I've sold books to in the past, however long I've been in business. Thor. Okay, I could probably sell these amount of books. 
It's like, great, okay. Instead, we're, we, we were actually not gonna do a Thor book. We're actually gonna do a book with Ogun, the West African deity. <laughs> and they're like, um, uh, I don't know what you're talking about, dude. I can't sell that book. I don't know anybody in my shop who's gonna come in and buy that book, especially when you're dealing with shops in the flyover states and when you're dealing with shops in you know more remote areas or places with more rural. And, and people, you know, people get very convinced by television and they forget that a lot of this country is really a lot of empty space. Yeah. And that's where most of the money from the comics book industry comes from is a lot of empty space and a lot of flyover states. And these are very the demographics are 30 to 45 year old white men who have been buying comics for years, who are traditionalists. These are the people who created uh, what was it? Hal's Emerald Advancement Team Heat that took over the Internet for years and demanded that Hal Jordan come back. These are the people who demanded <laughs> Barry Allen come back. Two of the most milk toast, boring, undefined characters in the history of comics, and they pushed and they murdered and they screamed until they came back I, because they're that conservative in their buying habits. This is the majority of the diamond, the audience, the diamond services. All I remember is is that in the eighties, the first Flash I knew was Kid Flash, Wally West, when Barry Allen was dying in Crisis. Mm-hmm. That's where I first really knew. I mean, I knew Flash from Super Friends, okay? I, I knew that, but I didn't pay any attention to that. Comic book-wise, I picked up Crisis, I saw Kid Flash become Flash, and I got that new series when they just relaunched everything, and New Flash, Superman, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, this is my Flash. Wally West is my Flash. And so, and it was like that until DC said, Wally West doesn't exist. <laughs> um and, you know, because, like, I don't really understand the whole Barry Allen comeback thing myself because that wasn't that wasn't me. That's not my generation. But you're right. The old, old generation got Barry back and Hal back. You know, mm-hmm. and, and there's also that disconnect because, like, I'll go I'll go to conventions and I'll see kids and like kids with parents and they'll ask them, you know, because like, these kids have seen Justice League. They've seen Justice League Unlimited. They watch Static, you know, Static Shock, all this stuff, and they're like, "I want to. If I want to get a John Stewart comic book, because they see Green Lantern, they see television. That's they see John Stewart. Well, before the Green Lantern animated series with Hal Jordan, but they saw John Stewart. That was their Green Lantern. So if they went to a store, if they went to a store to try to find a John Stewart book, they're not going to find one. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. And think about Emerald Warriors. I believe there's a Green Lantern series with him and. Uh, What's the name? Guy Gardner. They could buy that. Yeah. They, I wouldn't admit it, but they could do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But see, but that's the whole thing. It's you can, but you can't. And so, and like, and that's a problem. But then again, the market, the way it, the way it works right now, the business, the way it works right now, it's, it's just, it's just a complete mess. And there's such a disconnect. And, and I know, you know, I know, like, you know, there aren't a lot of comic book shops in, 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 in my, in like, you know, affluent minority neighborhoods. There's not. I mean, and if there, there are, are a lot of affluent minority neighborhoods. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. I'm trying to put. I'm trying to put some type of positive light on this. Um, but uh, well, I've read about that on the internet. That sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, you know, there's not a lot of com- comic book shops in in areas with minorities. They're just not there, and so it's hard for these you know these books with minority leads to sell. But I also, I'll, but I also think that during the DC relaunch. When it came to advertising, and I don't know if you saw any of the commercials, the commercials gave you bats, soups, Wonder Woman, Flash, the, the big guns. They flashed them in your face 
to me, would have made more sense to like mix in a Static Shock, mix in a Mr. Terrific. Heck, hell, even mix in OMAC. Wouldn't it make Why? more I just think it would just make more sense to say, to get people to say, who the hell is that? And that, that, you know, at least by at least by then at that moment, somebody can say, who the hell is that? And say, okay, maybe I need to find out who the hell that is and go to dccomics.com, find out what's going on with these books. I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying like everybody knows who, who soups, Wonder Woman and Batman are. You know, mm-hmm. I, they, they, there's, you know, they know who they are. But I'm just saying, if you mix additional images and additional characters in with those images, it helped to me. In my personal opinion, I think it helps. That's all true. I could, I can see that perspective. However, going back to the same Brevoort argument, mm-hmm. when you know you can spend ten thousand dollars marketing Wolverine and make back twenty thousand dollars, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why spend? If I know I can spend ten thousand dollars marketing Batman and make back twenty thousand dollars, why would I market uh, Omac? Yeah. No, you're right, and 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 like, and I can see that standpoint as well. But like everything, I guess, like with any business, there's always a risk reward. Mm-hmm. There's always a risk reward, and the thing is, is that if you never take that risk, yeah, I know there's a law of averages, but if you never take that risk, you'll never know. Now, unless you well, unless you do it like well, five straight times and it don't work, then you know. Well, here's the thing about that. There's there's a two sided two two issues in that regard. First of all, the comics industry is so close to a survival mentality that the idea of being creative and going out and taking risks, given the margins and giving the I mean, the cuts in editorial, I've I've seen cuts in editorial staffs at least over the last ten years where I remember going to cons and they would tell me they have me doing twice the amount of work and they've cut my staff in half. Mm. And this goes over, and, and you start to see it in the more more typos in the book, more errors in the book, and the, th- those sorts of things happening left and right. The print runs are smaller, the money comes in less. So, and, and you can look at this anywhere in the world. Anybody who's in a very survival mode, rated mode, is not going to take a lot of risks outside of their own survival. So that's the first thing to consider. Them. And second, when you look at the history of what they've been doing, what what will happen is. Uh, they'll say, what? What's the problem? We we did a static book. It didn't sell. We did a Mr. Terrific book. It didn't sell. Where, where was your community to support it at that point? What, if, if people wanted it that much, why didn't they buy it? Ignoring the fact that, and I love Eric Wallace very much. We've had a lot of, and we're going to be doing a lot of business with him on complicated.com, yeah. complicated with K. Um, the art was for considerably subpar on that book. It, it just was. Uh, on Static Shock, there was a schizophrenia in the writing between what Scott McDaniel wanted to do and what John Rosen wanted to do, which caused creative problems there. The double Sharon's thing, the Power Rangers uh, street gang that, that was yes. in there. There were creative problems, and those creative problems played out. And this is something that one of my colleagues, Jeffrey Thorne, talks about a lot of times. He says, when you're doing a black book, you can't just be as good as the rest of the market. You have to be better. My, growing up, my father said that all the time. He said, you have to be three times as good to get half the credit. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way it is. And if you're mad about it, you can go ahead and die now. <laughs> because they would, they, if, if you said, they would try to, well, let's see. We tried Static Shock. We tried Mr. Terrific. They would, they would try out books that came out and failed. So 
they could very easily trot out Mr. Terrific, Static Shock, uh, lots of books that they tr quote unquote tried. The Vixen book that uh, I forgot that that G Willow Woodson lady tried. You know, they could try out lots of books and then be like, these books didn't sell. Batman sells. It's not our fault. Yeah. Ignoring the fact that they're pushing them into a direct market with a predominantly white audience that has been known to be wildly conservative, ignoring whatever creative problems that they had, ignoring whatever marketing deficiencies they had. That's the strength of debating. You debate the things that you know that you can get past and try to minimize the things that are they're not as strong an argument. So, and this brings me to my, my own personal point, uh, we're essentially talking, we're essentially complaining why won't Massa spend his money on something I like? Oh, Massa, why won't you spend money on stuff I like? Wah, 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 wah. And at the end of the day, Massa's going to spend his money on what he's, what he's going to do. I'm a, I'm a brother from Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> you know, I, I am very clear on what people can do with their own money. Right. And if this is what they're choosing to do with their own money in their own little comics country club, then so be it. That's nothing I can control. What I can control is what I spend, what I support, and what I'm reading. So when I see that Prodigal, uh, the new graphic novel by uh, Jeffrey Thorne is out, I need to go pick that up. When I see Shadow Law by Brandon Easton is out, I need to go check that out. I need to see what's happening there because that's the community that supports me and that's the community, community I'm interested in supporting. I like that point. You're right. I mean, people are going to spend money where they want to spend money. And like sometimes like with I know with me and like a book like Mr. Terrific, I was I was curious about it from the jump. He's like one of my favorite superheroes. I was curious about it. And I remember the day I walked into a shop. I walked into a shop just to talk some business because I was trying to convince a shop owner to purchase some uh, some Action Lab books. Mm -hmm. And I saw the new Mr. Terrific. And I, and I looked at it, I saw, saw it from afar, I was like, ooh, I was like, the new Mr. Terrific, well, you know, how is it? How, how, you know, how's the reaction to it? And he looked at me, and he saw the hope on my face. <laughs> he saw the hope on my face, he did, and he just looked at me, he was just like, Sean, I'm just going to tell you, it, he's like, it's the first issue, it, but... He's like, you know what? Why don't you just go over there and just take a look at it? He's like, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. Why don't you go take a look at it? So I went and I took a look at it. When you said, you know, you, you talked about the artwork and it not fitting, it didn't fit. I, I think of Mr. Terrific as a stylized character, techno, a lot of technology being used. I'm thinking of a different type of art to fit a character like Mr. Terrific. Like, I, I read Mr. Terrific in the JSA, and he had a slew of great artists anytime somebody drew him. Or in you know, Infinite Crisis, George Perez drawing Mr. Terrific, the kick ass, you know, it's great. I've seen you all these. no wrong about George Perez. Oh, no, no, never, ever, never, ever, ever, ever. I've seen so many great renditions of Mr. Terrific over the years to then be handed this. It was a disappointment. And I, I, and I, and I read the whole issue and I, and I read the whole issue and I just and I just looked at the shop owner and I was just like, you were right about issue one. I said, okay, let me know when issue two shows up. I'll come back. I'll cop it. And we'll try it again. I come back a month later, issue two shows up, and I was like, I'm done. And I and and I'm all and like I'm always that positive dude that tries to give the benefit of the doubt. Which is a shame because the writing was solid. The yeah. writing was perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with the writing. There's nothing wrong with the writing at all. I mean, like basically, Wallace came in with the job. This is what the this is what editorial served him, 
And Wallace mm-hmm. gave a great story. Just the mm-hmm. artwork was just off. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that, you know, like I know if how many times will you sacrifice and continue to buy a book, regardless of how well the story is written, if the art is bad or if the art isn't up to par? Me personally, a lot more than other people because I'm a writer. <laughs> but that's I, I realize I'm not a standard consumer in that regard. You See, that's something. But see, that's something I used to do. Until like money got tight, and and then when money got tight, sacrifices had to be made. And, I understand. And so I had like I had to let it go. You know, I had to I had to, be, I had to be like Teddy Pendergrass. I had to let it go, and and I was just like I was hurt because that's my character. You know, it's just like Static Shock. That's you know, I mean, I don't own it, but it you know, I, I you know, I it just has like a very close connection to me. Like Static to me. People forget there's a period of time Static Shock was bigger than Spider-Man. I'm just talking about from a mainstream television perspective. I'm not talking about comic books. Uh But he was big. And he never had his own freaking toy. No. Well, not until until McDuffie was almost gone. Yeah, He, he, He actually complained about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, you know, Subway, Subway Happy Meal toys don't count to me. Well, I remember those. Terrible. But yeah, you're right. Before his passing... I saw, and there was the image of it was the uh, st- the older static, but mm-hmm. um, but at least there is a static. It, it bothers me for the simple fact that for Mr. Terrific and for Static Shock, especially more with Static Shock, with the whole issue with McDuffie, which has been talked about, Mr. McDuffie, the late Mr. McDuffie, which has been talked about on this podcast before. You know, going back to 2009 to hear Dan DiDio say, Dwayne is the writer of Justice League now until he doesn't want to write it anymore. <laughs> I will never, ever forget that statement. 2009 on Newsarama. I, the link is here somewhere. Mark my words. That is what this man said. And the only thing about it was, was that Dwayne was just being honest when people asked him about what's up with Justice League. He wasn't mean. He wasn't throwing no bows. He wasn't stabbing anybody with knives in the back. He was just saying, listen, this is what's happening. And this is why this is why this is what it is. And he gets the rug pulled out from. Him. Yep. That still to this day left a sour taste in my mouth. So when I see Static and I see Mr. Terrific get canceled, yes, other books got canceled as well. I get that, you know, I get that McDuffie feeling from Justice League. I get that feeling. It's like you're coming to play. And you're prepared to play, but the playing field is jacked up. It's like going to play football with your friends and like you normally would go play on like the nice park with the grass and everything is great. But for some reason, there's something going on that day at the park. So you got to go to the backup park and the backup part is all dirt and rocks. Uh-huh. That's what that was like to me. And to, and to a point, that's the way I feel about how Static was served, Mr. Terrific was served, and even stuff like... Even stuff like Blackhawks. I know people make jokes about about Blackhawks. I liked it, but still, it's how it was served. That's part of the problem. But well, in the words of John Cougar Mellencamp, "Ain't that America for you and me? Ain't that America? It's something to see, baby. Ain't that America? Home of the free." We're gonna move out from that, but we're gonna right. we're gonna stay on. To, but still within topic, we're gonna talk about designs. Uh-huh. 
Now, we, as we all know, everybody in, in the D.C., in the New 52 or the D.C. New or whatever the hell people are trying to call this, there have been lots of lots of designs. We've seen collars. We've seen we've seen Wonder Woman with pants and no pants. I'm not trying to be like an asshole or be snarky. I'm just saying we've seen a lot of changes for good yeah. and bad. Mm-hmm. And uh, because like a lot of people got hit with changes. The thing that got me most, and this is going back to Mr. Terrific. Um, this also goes to Cyborg and Steel. Is that before the relaunch, Mr. Terrific had that cool jacket. I do miss the jacket. You know, he had- I do miss the jacket a lot because I love that jacket. And you know, he had the cool pants. He had the cool gear. He had the cool look. You know, I, I like that. To me, that's Mr. Terrific. Yes, things can change, and I'm a person that will accept change and deal with it. But that Mr. Terrific before the relaunch, that image is iconic. Same with Steel. Steel before the relaunch. If you saw Steel, you knew that was Steel. With or without the S on his chest, you knew that was Steel. You mm-hmm. know, and and saying like with uh, Cyborg. Yeah, Cyborg's went through like 50 gajillion changes since the 80s, and we've all seen them. But there was still, and they yeah, they would blow them up every six months. But there was still that basic look to Cyborg. Even if they kind of smoothed him out a bit, there was still that basic look. Relaunch comes around. Mr. Terrific, because of the inconsistent artwork, he no longer has the jacket, he no longer has the pants. He's got like this like workout outfit. And it takes away from the iconic look of Mr. Terrific. Steel, and Steel looks like a reject from one of the Iron Man movies. You know, I mean, like, and once again, this is because, because of where the, the books have relaunched themselves and revamped themselves. Steel has kind of started all over as well, too. So, yeah, it's kind of a prototype still, but that iconic effect of what Steel was is gone. And Cyborg now looks like Donatello, Cyber Donatello from the image Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm, I'm, I'm in my 30s. I grew up in the 80s. And, you know, and I've read books again in the 90s. I know iconically what these characters looked like. And now, yeah, they changed. And, yeah, other characters changed, too. But when they changed these character styles so much, they lost, to me, they lost a lot of power. Not just on paper but just as characters period my personal opinion i mean if you have any two cents please feel free to to, to. well um my two cents would be somewhere along this line um if master tells me he's gonna paint his house a different color then master's gonna paint his house a different color and there's nothing i could do about that no matter how much i like that house no matter how well what i appreciated about that house no matter how i like the time that alex ross drew that house or what have you, <laughs> it's Mass's house. Right. And he's going to ma- paint Mass's house whatever he wants to paint Mass's house. Right. Now, with Steel, with Cyborg, with a lot of these things, these were not... Well, well first of all, we're, we're overlooking some financial considerations here. Uh, Jim Lee came through and did a drastic redesign of most of the visuals in the line, mm-hmm. which means that when these visuals are used, that it's not the uh, it's not the Siegel and Schuster design that they have to worry about paying for. It's the Jim Lee design. Right. It's the guy in house, not the guy who's suing them. Okay. The Superman S, for example, now is drastically different with angles instead of curves. So that means, from a copyright or trademark standpoint, standpoint, oh, well, that's different enough. We can pay this Jim Lee guy. We don't have to worry about that pesky Siegel and Schuster lawsuit that's still lingering. That they're still trying to get that money back. Mm. things of that sort 
So when you look at that from that side, you know, they went hard on this relaunch. They really tried to put uh, their own stamp on it, the stamp being Jeff Johns, Jim Lee, and uh, Dan DiDio, uh, where it's it's a huge gamble. You know, either they're going to win big or they're going to lose big. But if they win big, there's everything. You have no idea how much merchandising makes. You have no idea. They, they could stop printing comics for an entire year tomorrow and no one at Warner Brothers would care oh, no. because they make it up on merchandising. Oh, yeah, definitely. Every single day. So... If that merchandising changes to be a different design that frees them up from one, the trademarks and copyright concerns of the past, and two, puts a check in the hands of somebody new, you know, again, Mass is like, oh, I hired this great new guy to paint my house. He's great. I love this guy. This guy does whatever I tell him to do. I, I try not to take, I mean, from, from, from the standpoint of now Steel having these uh, cable, cables visible on his arms and legs like it was a Michael Bay character in a Transformer, yeah, that's dumb. Um, the bulkier uh, uh, football player approach to Cyborg, eh, I, 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 could, I could take it or leave it. It doesn't really matter to me one way or another because I understand the transient nature of these things. Uh, to get overly emotional in licensed properties that I don't own. I'm not going to say I don't do it because I'm a Legion fan. But <laughs> <laughs> and that's and with yes, a I'm, lot of changes. I'm still, I, I still appreciate what we call the Wade Kitson reboot period, the WKRP. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, even, even with that in mind, I, I do these things with a grain of salt, knowing that ultimately it's Massa's house to paint as Massa wants. And were there... Well, let me put this way. As a designer, would I have done some of these things? No. But I didn't get that check. Yeah. I didn't get that assignment. <laughs> so it's not really, you know, it, it's anybody can Tuesday morning quarterback. Right. You know, but the, the fact of the matter is from a Warner Brothers standpoint, right now, DC took the market lead for the first time in so many years that nobody could remember. Yeah. They murdered Marvel for the first time for like a quarter in ever in definitely within my memory and that kind of financial reward kicks in big for those guys they're like they're now the golden boys they can write their own ticket want to write a movie sure come on write a movie yeah sure come on write this tv series green Arrow tv series have fun yeah party on (laughs) and yet once again just justin hartley is out of a job you know what times is hard It's a rough economy, baby. You got to do what you got to do. Yo, he, yeah. better, he better invest those Smallville residual checks. I'm going to just put it that way. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, if you don't like it, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's hard to argue with success. I mean, like I said, we could be mad all we want. But, you know, if people... It's hard to the, the clamor of people complaining is hard to hear over the, the, the buckets of money pouring over their heads. Yeah. That's why, like you said, you try not to get fully, you try not to get fully invested in it because you don't own it. You know, you, Mm -hmm. you, you know, you didn't create it. You don't own it. But still, it's just like you have been with it for so long that like if something gets jacked up, you're like, damn it. You know, you just feel like somebody just like cold cocked you in the face and you didn't see it coming sometimes. Let me let me let me put it this way. I was talking about what's happened with. Uh, Jonathan Mayberry and David uh, and Wakanda at Marvel and I said that they have no idea what they took from us 
in what happened to Wakanda when Doom marched in there and led them to destroy the vibranium mound that's been the basis of not only their economic stability but their power since Jack and Stan were around. Yeah. You know, uh, and the idea that that is suddenly gone, that this this impossible Ethiopian themed kingdom that was never conquered now all of a sudden has a has you know a little asterisk next to T'Challa who all who cannot be called anything but T'Challa the failure now yeah who cannot in history be called anything but that and that's the Black Panther I grew up with that's the Black Panther my my the generation before me grew up with mm-hmm. and now he'll always be stuck with that that's always gonna be hanging around his neck yeah that hurts, dog. I'm not gonna lie. Mm-hmm. That hurts a lot. <laughs> yep. But Black Panther's not my house. It's Master's house. Yep. As as black as the word is, there, it's still not my house. So at the end of the day, I got to move on and figure out some other stuff to do. And hey, what's Brandon Easton doing? <laughs> you know, I gotta see what's going on over here. What's oh, is that is that Brandon Thomas on Voltron? Let me see what he's doing. At least at least he's on a smaller publisher. He can get away with some crazy stuff. Hey, oh, and which which reminds me of an important distinction that I need to point out. Yes, uh, the original article uh, uh, was uh, said that every every black writer in mainstream comics was fired, and that's true because seventy five percent of the industry is served by two companies, Marvel and DC. That's true. The last black writers existing in the big four, because Image and Dark Horse still exist. There's nobody at Dark Horse, so let's write them off right now. Okay, but <laughs> Image has a creator owned book called Vessel by his brother Enrique Carrion. He's uh, black and uh, Puerto Rican from New York. I've been talking with him. We're going to be doing a lot of coverage on him on complicated.com. And Jimmy Robinson writes Bomb Queen, which is the last thing you would think that a black guy is involved with, but it's true. (laughs) You know, uh, are we going to say that image is the last stand for black writers in comics? I don't know, but (laughs) that's where we are right now. So, Yes, that's a limited access, because when you say that you're working at a publisher that has 13 percent of the market compared to one that serves 75, 40 or or, or 39 percent of the market. Yeah, that's that's working in a different league. That's the difference between, you know, uh, pirate radio and FM. Right. So and, and we recognize that. But, you know, if that's where the industry is starting to say things and especially with the realities of digital distribution distribution starting to change things we can now spend our money in smarter ways we can vote with our dollars in more effective ways than the same and i go to the shop every week with his brother said well you know i've been buying this x-men book since you know jim lee and i i don't want to interrupt my run really really you don't want to interrupt a 20-year run just because it stinks you want to keep giving them really you know and and i i say all the time every time you say that the terrorists win Every every time you say something like that, somewhere in America, a kitten gets fisted to death. <laughs> See, and that and that was something that I stepped away from a long time ago too, because listen, I got you know money is tight, and like mm-hmm. it, it it was different in the it was different in the eighties when books were like thirty five a dollar six sixty five cents a dollar a dollar fifty dollar twenty five you know oh I was good, I was good mm-hmm. I buy to my heart's content. Then you hit like two ninety nine, and you're like, hmm, all right. I mean, that's cool. I understand times are hard. You know, times are changing. You know, cost of living going up. All right, no problem. Two ninety nine. And then when you hit that three ninety nine, oh hell no. <laughs> you think I'm gonna keep buying this book? Shit, no. 
No, no, no. I mean, like even at two ninety nine, that was kind of like the wake up call. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying two ninety nine is a bad price. It wasn't a bad price at all. But it was like it's a bad price. It's a bad price. <laughs> well, but you gotta look at it like this though. Um, it's just as far as like printing costs go for like smaller publishers. Smaller publishers trying to make a book for two ninety nine, you can forget it. Because listen, I mean, like we, you know, like smaller publishers, and I know this from experience. Trying like to print a book for two ninety nine, like between twenty four to twenty eight pages, and like trying to find a printer to not get gaffled to the point of you got to buy like ten thousand copies of the book, and and with the the way the direct market works right now, that ain't gonna happen. It, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's just just too hard. So so you got to charge three ninety nine. But yeah, you're right. Two ninety nine is rough. You know it was. You know it's it's two ninety nine was rough. Three ninety nine is even more rough. But mm-hmm. I, I just remember when books started being two ninety nine. That's when I started to really pay attention to what I was buying. And then mm-hmm. you start going home. It's like going home. Like why do I have this run? <laughs> why am I still reading this? And I was like, I'm gonna go to my comic shop. Tell my dude. I'm like, listen, take that out my hold. Take this off my hold. Do not give me any more Aztec. I'm done. You know. Oh, spirit! You did not just say Aztec. Yes, I did. <laughs> you know what, man? Listen, for for all intents and purposes, I did like Aztec. I went back and I got the trade. Cut me deep on that one. You cut me deep. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I went back because I went back because during that period of time, I remember buying Aztec and I remember buying Zero because uh, Zero yeah. was the, was the Priest I book. Mm-hmm. I remember many years later, Christopher Priest talking about the problems he had on Zero, and then I went back and I reread the stuff, and I'm like, oh, now that makes perfect sense. Now mm-hmm. I see why this book is like this. You know, I, I never knew. It was just like it was just weird to me when I was reading it when it first came out. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And then, then reading, going to Christopher Priest's site, saying this is what happened during Zero, going back and reading, I'm like, oh, now nah, I see. Okay, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't mean to cut you on that Aztec. Uh, sometimes, look, sometimes a brother's a sucker for a costume. I told you. Uh, I told you, but. <laughs> Something that I want to get to, um, two things, because I want you to talk about the it's compl- the uh, complicated website, complicated with a K, and mm-hmm. um, also, you know, since like we've been talking about, you know, we've been talking about like you know certain characters in comics. We've also talked a little bit about race in comics. You got something. You have something on the complicated website called the Black Hero Origin Algorithm. Yes, sir. Can you kind of explain to people what that's about? Yes, sir, I can. Uh, Many years ago, uh, I sat in my living room with Vince Moore, who's been a comic retailer for going on 15 years and who's uh, written Total Recall for Dynamite. And we came up with what we call the Black Hero Origin Algorithm for major publishers. It's a spotlight on the lack of creativity that's happened in terms of how major publishers, and that's, again, mostly DC and Marvel, but a little bit of image, have created black characters. There's four core tropes that happen for almost every black character. Either A, they were raised in poverty, B, they were in the Olympics, C, they have a criminal background, or D, they were inspired by white heroes, either taking their legacy, taking their name, or taking some kind of inspiration from them. Since that time, and this was 10 years ago me and him came up with this, and we were only able to come up with about 10 or 12 characters that didn't fit it. 
Uh, since then, we added uh, a couple of uh, additions to this, which we call the Tony Isabella corollary, that the character has electrical powers. If you don't know, Tony Isabella created the character Black Lightning in the 70s. Yes. The X-Men exception, so so many black characters were quote-unquote inspired by Chuck Xavier's dream, we're going to just say, eh, we're kind of going to get that one a little past. And then what we call the John Stewart impurity, where black characters had a greater weakness to physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual corruption than the white counterparts, be it mind control for Falcon, religious fanaticism for triathlon, Cyborg went nuts several times, was taken over software wise, mm-hmm. or, you know, or John Stewart, who killed now two planets, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not to mention dying. You know, so yeah. all these things kind of played in. At, at the end of the day, let me count here real quick, three, six, nine, 12, 15. We were only able to come up with 18, and some of them we're, we're still wiggling on, <laughs> that did not fit this at the major publishers. I mean, and it's, it's really, it's sad because we looked at it in a way that we eventually started looking at characters like, well, how will we rate them? If you look at one of these characters, like say for instance, let's look at Luke Cage. We started to give them a rating of an Ebony White. If you know Ebony White, that's the uh, Eisner character from The Spirit who had these big lips and these big eyes and he was a big character and he was so embarrassing that they wanted to leave him out of future things, but I remember. So, <laughs> You know, we started to rate, okay, Monica Rambeau, who played, who was Captain Marvel, she gets one, one Ebony, or three Ebonies go to Jon Stewart, or, or uh, Blade, or Jakeem Thunder, or you only, there's only one so far that we found had five Ebonies, which is Triathlon, because he's got, <laughs> he's, he's the most sadly embarrassing, and the bad thing is, because I know Kurt Busiek who created him, yeah. Kurt's a great guy, Kurt's awesome, he made Astro City, he's got such a wealth of rich, developed, and many black characters that are so quality, but I don't know what happened on triathlon, dog. Yeah. I don't know what happened there. <laughs> no, you know, he, he must have just fell asleep at the wheel on that one. Yeah, so, I just remember the first time I saw triathlon, I was like, "Oh, cool! All right, we got a brother in the Avengers, not named Rage. Cool! All right, let's, <laughs> you know, I'm ready to go check this out." And I'm like, "Why is triathlon so angry?" <laughs> if I was a brother in the Marvel universe, maybe I'd be mad. I wasn't getting a lot of play either. But still, why are you so mad? Why? Well, it's it, it, when you also look at the fact that he's, you know, Marvel's version of a Scientologist with the triune understanding. There's a lot of there's a there's a lot of ch- and and the brother's name is Delroy. So, I wasn't going to talk about that. I wasn't going to talk about that. I had to. I had to. America needed me to. <laughs> <laughs> he, he has some issues, and then he had the thing with the. He was the only one who could see the scrolls during Secret Invasion. Yet he didn't get any real play. He ended up hunting. Scroll cows with the scroll kill crew, and it's just really he's he's an embarrassment, especially when you look at the fact he's wearing red, black, gold, and green. He's an embarrassment in every possible way. So I mean, (laughs) you could take him out of the costume and put in Buck Wild Mercenary Man and do better. Oh, <laughs> and for those that don't know, go back and read Classic Icon and learn all about Buck Wild. And he won't be, he won't be held down by the white man's gravity. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first issue of Icon I ever bought. And I was in tears when I was reading that. Oh. And, and I never and I never looked at 70s comics with black characters the same ever again. Ruined. Ruined forever. <laughs> yeah. 
that's that's the black hero origin algorithm and and we you know we thought well maybe things have changed and we started looking at even modern more modern characters were coming out nope same thing <laughs> so, <laughs> like, oh you were in the olympics oh you were a criminal oh you will just take up the mask of some oh, oh you miles morales you're gonna be the black spider-man are you all right well uh good luck with that player all right <laughs> you know how that works out for you see what got me I started looking through your list at the um, the small number of heroes that don't fall under don't fall under the algorithm, mm-hmm. and I was looking, and when I saw Jodo from Teen Titans, mm-hmm. I almost threw my monitor out the window <laughs> because see once again you struck a nerve with me. See, you cut you deep. Huh? You cut me deep. You cut me deep for two reasons. Two reasons. <laughs> One, see when I got to like when I started like buying Titans again. When Jodo was in the team, Jurgens had the book. Uh, Ray Palmer was like a kid; he was like much younger, so they put him on the Teen Titans. I was mm-hmm. like, "Who's Jodo?" I was like, "This brother's bad." How come the second issue I bought a Teen Titans, Jodo got killed? I was done, <laughs> done. I was like, "Why are they killing? Why are they killing Jodo?" I was like, "I just bought the damn book, you know." And like he had been there for a while, but I'm like, "Damn it, why are you doing that?" So I've seen <laughs> exactly. So I was like, okay. Uh, and then like, it took me like about four years to finally calm down. <laughs> and, and, and then like, I went back and I slowly started piecemealing back that teen Titan series because I actually did like that series. You, you got your, you got your, your, uh, your, your five year Legion. I got that teen Titans. So I'm at, okay, cool. Some of the other characters were like Bloodwind. See, mm. see. And once again, you almost cut me. <laughs> you almost cut. He had a great costume design. He had a fantastic costume design. Yeah, hey, I, I look, look, I like Bloodwind. I like the character, but I'm like sometimes I see that all white outfit, and and depending on who drew it and what angle they drew it, it looked like from far away because you can really couldn't really see his face or like tell like the way the mask fit around his face. It looked like it was like puffy from like uh, the "I'll Be Missing You" video coming down from the sky. And I was just like, I can't deal with this right now. I can't. I'm so done with you right now. I'm just so done with you right now. <laughs> I had to get that out. I'm sorry. I had to get that out. But, uh, but <laughs> the, the league will be reviewing this play. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't do hey, man. I've been penalized many times. So, um, you know, hey, I'm, I'll be all right. If I get fined, so be it. But, wow. um, but um, the one that cracks me up most Northwind, and there's three stars, three a- like asterisks by it, and down below mm-hmm. in the translation sheet, it says, "Even though the brother's a bird man, dot dot dot, it is what it is." <laughs> we got to get our brothers in what we can. If we got to wear some feathers, okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, at least Todd McFarland's room for a little while. Oh, Todd. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I I still have those issues of Infinity Inc. I was like, well, Northwind's this is a Northwind issue. I need to get this. Then I opened it up, start reading, and I'm like, because I liked Infinity Inc., but there were a couple issues, and there were the ones a lot of times featuring Northwind. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have bought this. Because, like, you know, it's kind of like hurting my feelings about Northwind right now. You're not helping me right now. So, And the, and the thing that they don't recognize, white folk never have this feeling. They never have this feeling like they're embarrassed for their whole existence yeah. over comic books. <laughs> they're like, Dude, Tyrock is wearing panties, dog, and pointy shoes. And I'm loving this because it's all I got. Yeah. And, and he's screaming because he's mad at everybody. 
and that's his power. He's got sonic screaming powers. So he's, he's basically, he's wearing Black Canary's outfit and powers. That's just freaking wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. The rest of the, with the rest of America, they can just look at D-Man and just laugh. Because they have choices. Yes, they have choices. They have a breadth of experience. But- we got Tyrock. <laughs> And, I, and I, the bad thing, I love Tyrock. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> well, you know what, man? I got to go to a convention in in about a month from now. And when I see Mike Grell at the convention, I'm going to shake his hand and tell him, Hannibal Taboo told me to tell you he loves Tyrock. You can do that. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> All right, cool. All right. I'm just checking. I'm just checking the bylaws right <laughs> what now. What he's going to say, though, is, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. And yeah, that's in the right navigation on complicated.com. So we want people to be able to find that. It need not to be a secret. Yeah, so. th- no, it, it, it must be seen. You must read this. It's not like the days when the Blade movie came out then a year and a half later. Oh, we need a Blade book. Oh, it didn't sell. See, told you nobody liked Blade. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't the case. The case is, y'all, <laughs> they, you know, they left because you slept. And there was no book available. And then by the time you put out one, it was shitty. Mm-hmm. And then you come up with one later with Mark Guggenheim and you don't really get behind it. It's like, uh-uh. how do you how do you get a Blade book with Guggenheim and Howard Chaykin on it for a couple issues and then not sell? Really? And like, I'm not a biggest I'm not the biggest fan of Guggenheim in the world. But when he hits, he hits. And when he misses, he That's misses, true. you know, mm-hmm. but still it's like, how the fuck do you not sell a Blade book? You know, how come Paul Cornell? makes Blade more interesting in, in uh, Captain Britain and MI, MI-13 than like the last like X amount of Blade books that came out over the last 10 years. Don't make no fucking sense to me, man. It just, it doesn't. Because he can concentrate on him. He doesn't have to spread him over 20 some odd pages. He can just have him on four pages and yeah, be interesting. That is That's true. all the Blade I got this month, player. <laughs> you right, you right. All I got. You you right. Yeah, you right. But I, I, I'll take that. I'll take that over over a bad book any day of the week. Don't get me started on that 90s uh, Black Lightning. Oh, if you had any idea the struggles that Black Lightning has gone through. Don't don't mm. don't even get me started, brother. Seriously. Don't get and see and you know what? Like I ain't mad at Tony Isabella. Cuz Tony Isabella's like, you know, DC need to cut me a check. And DC is like, yeah. DC is like, how about if you just never write for DC ever again? <laughs> That's the opposite of the check. Yes, yeah, that's some hate. I'm talking like hate, hate. I'm like that's like that's bigger than Drake hating common hate. So, yeah, which is ridiculous, by the way. That whole thing makes me sad. I'm like, both of them need to go get a sweater vest and shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Although I did chuckle when common when common called Drake Canada dry. And I'm sorry. I've been listening to common since. Since uh, uh, can I borrow a dollar? Yes, Common's a better MC than that. Yeah, that verse was not a, that was. In, I was embarrassed for him for that verse. I'm like, I could serve you if that's the verse you bring in. Right. Yeah. I'm like, why are you gonna do that? I, that I I didn't I just don't understand. But right now, like with hip hop, I, I have I have issues with mainstream hip hop because well, one corporate radio has killed radio, and I don't know what the hell these labels are doing. But then again, the labels never truly plan for the future. 
And now they're like, well, you know, how come artists aren't selling like 15 times platinum? I'm like, this ain't the 90s no more. No, it's we're having the same discussion. The comic argument is the music. It's the exact same discussion. The difference is that you can get four four or five more black folk in music than you can get in comedy. You do right. Other than that, you know, uh, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same basic argument. Yeah. And and in that, it's just as tedious and just as says like you can't sell because you haven't fixed your distribution channels. Yep. You haven't accepted you live in the future yet. Yep. We we are damn near the Jetsons and motherfuckers still acting like it's the Flintstones. Yeah, I did notice there were no black people in either of those cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah, got my nerve. Yeah, I, I was, I was a little, you know, and I didn't notice that until it was like around twelve. And I remember I just got mad and I turned off the TV. And my dad was like, "What's wrong with you?" I was like, "Ain't no black people on this." <laughs> my dad just started laughing. He's like, "He's like, it took you that long to notice that?" I was like, "Listen, it was the episode of the Flintstones where like Fred was goggles Paisano and was like that race driver." And I was just like, "How come ain't no brothers racing?" And I was like. Wait a minute! They ain't no black people on the Flintstones at all. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna let this episode end, and I'm watching this because like they would play two episodes back to back. I was like, I'm watching this next episode, and I waited. I was like, it's got to be one. Nope. nope. And then I re- and then I remembered it as a uh, as a backdoor thank you. Hanna Barbera came out with the Flintstone kids and gave us Philo Quartz, <laughs> and they made him the smartest kid in the group. So I'm like, so not only you made him the smartest, which we can now call the magical Negro. Yes, the guidance of the crew. Mm-hmm. Yes, like because Urkel was popular. Never get no booty though. No, 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 ne- never, ever, ever. You no play, no play, none, none whatsoever. And it's like, so y'all put Urkel in Bedrock, mm-hmm. and he gets beat up all the time. You're welcome. <laughs> See, and people wonder why, like, because, like, like I'll talk to this shit about, I'll talk about the same stuff to my friends. They're like, why do you remember this? I'm like, because it was painful. <laughs> because I love cartoons. I love comic books. I love media. And it's like, this is what I grew up on. They're like, how can you remember this shit? I'm like, listen, I don't know. But sometimes the pain just stays with you. And, and when you talk about it, it makes you feel better and it makes you laugh. It's just like little Archie's. People forget little Archie's in the 90s. They put a brother on that mm-hmm. show, and he was the smartest one on the block. And got beat up all the time. But at least they gave him a sister, right? You know, right mm-hmm. by his side. So at least I know, at least I knew that if there was a dance, he would have a date. Because he wasn't taking Veronica or Betty. That wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sorry, I digress. We need to tell people about the complicated website. Once again, complicated with a K. Tell the folks mm-hmm. um, what complicated.com is all about and like what goes on on that site. Okay. Complicated is, to borrow a line from Lupe Fiasco, doing it for the block and the blogosphere. We try to take stock of the black geek aesthetic, covering areas of culture, escapism, music, and technology. For example, every Monday, you can find pretty much a gigabyte of free music 
MP3s from, you know, all the way from Anthony Hamilton and R&B to the band Perry and country music, you know, everything that you're looking for there for absolutely free every Monday morning. Or we do lots of things like we uh, had a big run of Who'd Win Wednesday where fans decided which character could defeat which character in, in, in battles on Facebook. We also have regular columns uh, in areas of comics covering what's coming out in movies. We just did, covered Idris Elba's shots from uh, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. We have technology coverage where we look at new smartphones, issues like Acta and SOPA and PIPA, things of that sort. And we basically try to cover everything that the quote-unquote post-black, quote-unquote post-racial, quote-unquote interesting uh, sort of black person would be into, uh, which for me, I just basically say, am I interested in it? Close enough. Even though I admit sometimes, you know, I'm not the biggest Skyrim player, and I know lots of people are, so we've been reporting a lot on Skyrim and things of that sort too, so we try to get into the areas where we are, where we're not so appreciated. One of the first things we did was we had an interview with this sister who calls her, her, her tag is burn your bra. She's a professional street fighter player and she's black mm. and she's probably the number two or number three rated player in the world. People don't know that. No, I so, didn't know that. And, and I mean, she gets paid to pull out a joystick and break out a character and whoop people's butt in street fighter. <laughs> You can't beat that. No, you can't. You know, we when when we're able to cover, you know, Dr. Mae Jemison uh, doing the hundred year spaceship project. When we're able to, you know, look at uh, my good good sister Ava DuVernay being the first black woman, the first black person, period, to win the directing award, best directing award at Sundance. These are this is who we are, and these kinds of accomplishments, these kinds of complexities, these kinds of you know uh, the fact that we can sit and listen to DMX and turn around and listen to Darius Rucker on the same day. This kind of breadth is is, is the sort of thing that we want to talk about. That that we won't be defined by anything outside. We are we can love Star Trek or Star Wars or not care one way or another, and have all those things be as true at the same time. It's a site that talks to our identity as it emerges and as we refuse to be pigeonholed into what any one person is going to think black is or is not. And you also have comics on there, too. Yes, we do. Speaking, uh, putting putting my money where my mouth is, as they say, we uh, <laughs> have syndicated content that we call the new black. We said that the uh, original stories are the new black. And we have uh, six currently properties. We're going to be expanding that probably in the next month because, you know, it's black history month so we got to pull something special together uh we have world of hurt by jay potts which is this awesome black exploitation story but not in a like you know embarrassing dolomite way that you can't look at in front of white folk way but <laughs> it's a really great noirish detective story uh we have Southside nefertiti which is about this single mother superhero which is awesome uh freedman which uh is a story of uh, a brother after juneteenth who is traveling through the south who can't get the idea of revenge out of his head, but it's in the antebellum South. So, you know, there's only so many things he can do. Right. Force Galaxy is a superhero book set in the far future with black people. Uh, Blackjack is a, a black soldier of fortune in the 30s who, you know, lives this fantastic life that people drives people crazy because they don't want to see a black guy living that way. 
And finally, we have uh, fantasy stories from Stranger Comics from their world of Asunder uh, that, you know, whereas normally you go, you might turn on Lord of the Rings and not see any black elves. You're not, you're not going to have that problem with Asunder stories. And uh, these are the sorts of things that we're bringing to the table in terms of giving a voice and giving representation where people don't normally see us. As we, you know, we make a joke on our About Us page about the Flintstones and the Jetsons may have tried to write us out of the past and the future, but we're putting us we're putting ourselves back whether they like it or not yes Philo hey hey Philo Quartz was a smart brother he was the Urkel of the Flintstone Kids universe but he still he was he was still a punk though cause he got punked all the time Philo poor Philo he always got punked see now somebody gonna be on the corner pouring out something for Philo Quartz right now and it's sad just say they won't be able to pour too much because he's gonna create the prehistoric version of BET and he's gonna be yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm actually surprised they never made an episode like that, the Flintstone kids, because knowing them back then, they would have did that. But it's funny you mentioned World of Hurt. We, uh, I interviewed, um, I interviewed Mr. Potts, um, like uh, for uh, for an episode of the PKD Black Box. I want to say it was episode was it 46 maybe. Um, I interviewed him for an episode of the PKD Black Box, and I love World of Hurt. That mm-hmm. honestly, that's a comic, like you said, that's a comic that should be in everybody's hands. Mm-hmm. It is gorgeous, absolutely. Well, the gorgeous. trade paperback came out in December, so yes. you know it's a, it's available. Oh yeah, and I plan on getting a copy too. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I would definitely invest my money over there for that book. It's because it's it's worth it. It's like widescreen. Have you seen that hardcover? Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. He's, he's he's really the fact that he doesn't uh, because he writes and draws it. <laughs> the fact that he doesn't work in in what we quote unquote call mainstream comics is an embarrassment. Yeah, you know you can't tell me you can't tell me the talent's not there. You can't tell me that Mark Bernadin wasn't there, that Eric Wallace wasn't there, that Jeffrey Thorne wasn't there. It, it, I'm just not gonna be able to buy that. The yeah. Angela Robinson wasn't there. You know I know that the talent is there because obviously they're making the money in Hollywood. They're just not good enough for comics. Really seriously? Yeah. Ed, yeah. Don't even get me that. Don't get me started on that, man. Don't. Don't. I. All right. We, we, we're gonna rep for Philo. We're gonna keep it positive. Yeah, we're gonna keep it. Right. <laughs> yeah, we'll rep for rep for Philo. Somebody needs to make that into a T-shirt right now. Challenge accepted. <laughs> uh, well, Hannibal, thank you so much for um, for coming on for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and I hope you had a good time. Oh, I, I did. I enjoyed myself very much, and I, I'm I, I appreciate your work. I appreciate everything that's happening. And thank you for having me. here because we're going to talk about red tails and i recently saw the film and so did joey and we've got some feelings on it and so like here's the opportunity to do it and and i'm hyped because we're gonna hit it from all all sides of the spectrum but before i go on my take joey you're here let's hear your side of it well i'll ask you a question first off though okay is this the most unfairly maligned movie in recent memory like Um, where i walked out and i i I had heard all the you know, I'd read all the, I read a bunch of reviews. I saw what people are saying online, and I came out of the movie, and I really didn't. It, that didn't connect at all to me. I was just like, "Wow, that was so much better than what the consensus was." And I just, it really made me wonder if it was more of a, 
again people oh it's lucas affiliated so we have to like trash it the the lucas the lucas thing is was a is as far as the criticism because it's a lucas project was a concern of mine because the the biggest issue i have with the film the biggest issue that that i feel hurt the film was that the dialogue in a lot of spots was ham-fisted well i think there was an aesthetic reason for that though yeah and a lot of that had to do with the to me a lot of it had to do with the fact and we'll we'll touch this later on is that lucas wanted to do a war movie 1950 style a 1950 style war movie that was in a 1950s theater but with a 2011 2012 tech you know technology focus and the thing is, is that if you've never seen old school war movies, I'm talking about old school, old school war yeah, movies. Yeah. If you've never seen those, then th- then I can understand the criticism. Now, as far as from a historical aspect, as we all know, it says inspired by true events. I didn't expect it to be, you know, 100% actual and factual. It, it was way more than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. The thing is, sometimes, especially when you're dealing with historical films that deal with, you know, African-Americans, there are times where, like, for example, let's say somebody right now said, we're going to do a a Martin Luther King um, biopic. That film will come under the most heaviest, you know, heaviest scrutiny in the history of film. And I can understand why for the one reason. You will not bullshit facts on Martin Luther King. You won't. Because if you do... You will get like you will get lambasted, you know what I mean? Because you have to be a hundred percent exact and thorough. No sidestepping, no bullshit, no unheard stuff. You, you know nothing you've never heard of before. You have to be a hundred percent actual and factual with it. And I'm like with a film like Red Tails, a lot of people I think were looking for that actual factual representation through and through. But instead, this war movie literally puts you in the middle of the game. There's no origin story. You're right in the middle of the game. Going back to the whole Lucas thing. I'm sorry, I sidetracked. Going back to the whole Lucas thing. Some of that, I think some of that criticism is going towards Lucas. I still applaud him for financing this movie. Oh, yeah. I, I'm totally... Like, that. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this with you is I know you're one of the other few people I know that doesn't hate George Lucas. Like, to me... I, and again, I'm not even a huge Star Wars guy. Maybe that's why. But, like, I always just look at his story as such an inspirational story. Like, to me, he's one of the good guys yeah. in Hollywood. It's out there, like doing pro. Like again, only he would do something like this. Yeah, I mean, fifty-three million bankrolled out of his pocket, his own pocket, because he went to studios and studios were like, "We're, you know, we, we won't make this film because we don't know how to how to market a black film." <sighs> to which, once again, I say, "Listen, I talk about race a lot, all right, but like when it comes to movies, they're movies, okay? They're 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 movies. Quit and like you can't be scared to like make a movie like Red Tails because you think white people won't dig it. I, you know, I, but once again, this is Hollywood and and like Hollywood and and it's and it's um and how it looks at black people in film has always been something that has been a hot fucking mess. And and that's something else I want to talk to you later about too. But I applaud him for that. And not only that. 20th Century Fox, who, who decided to distribute it, didn't want to pay for any of the prints. Lucas had to pay for the prints, too. And he paid for most of the advertising. I think yeah. all the advertising. Yeah. And, he, <laughs> and even then, 20th Century Fox said, this movie is going to underperform. And then opening weekend, you know, it's like uh, close to like, you know, 19, 20 million opening weekend. And Fox was just like, Lucas did it again. You know, he trumped us again. And, and even then, in its second week, 
its drop off, its box office intake drop off only fell 46%. I don't, under, I mean, like I said, look, it's, there's room for criticism on the movie, okay? There is open room for criticism because, like I said, to me, the dialogue is ham fisted, but like you said, there's a reason why. And I, and well, I, I don't, don't want to get to it. It's one of those things, it was a thought I had. Um, have you seen The Artist, by the way? Actually, no, I have not, sir. Okay. It's a very good movie. I liked it a lot. It, but I, uh, one of my criticisms of that movie was that. You know, if you read the interviews and stuff about it, they said, like, oh, you know, the director wanted to make this black and white silent film today. And people are like, you're crazy. You know, we'd never go for that. But I was always like, well, to be fair, that's the easier way to do something. Because people are, are they find, I don't know, it's easier for them to swallow something if they feel like it's a throwbacky thing. And if you do it the most obvious way, as in making a film look exactly like and feel exactly like something from a period to the point where, like, you could. I don't know. You can drop, you know, if someone who really didn't know anything about anything, you can try and fool them and say, oh, this actually came out then. They would believe you. Like, those are the films that go, and like, the artist is doing very well. And it's a great movie. I'm not saying don't go see it. Go see it. It's great. But I thought the fact that it's being applauded for being, you know, a black and white silent film is like, well, really, if you wanted to be risky and you really wanted to, you know, really a more challenging thing would be to do one in color with actors today that are huge because people wouldn't know what the fuck to do with themselves sitting mm-hmm. in a theater watching that. And I felt like that way with Red Tails. I was like, you know, if they had made this black and white, I think people would have a way easier time swallowing that, like swallowing the dialogue. Cause like, Oh, it's a throwback to this. It's like, you know, it's like, but because they use all these special effects from today, because it's in color, because like parts of it are kind of modernized, they feel a little more like a modern film. People just feel the more the need to they're, they're more open to not accept what it is. When to me, like you said, like I, I think to me this very much did feel like a film of the early fifties, like a lost film, like what Lucas kind of wanted it to be. Yeah, and 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 the thing is, is that it took me, I think, a day or two after I saw it to finally realize that because. When something clicked in my head, um, and I remembered a couple of the uh, older Star Wars documentaries where Lucas talked about how during the um, in Star Wars, like A New Hope and stuff like that, during the the uh, you know star starship scenes, like during the battle scenes, how the dogfights between Tie Fighters and X Wing fighters. That stuff's based off of old wartime movies, actual official war, you know wartime footage of dogfights, and it's based off of that. And he was a big fan of dogfight, you know, of, of you know, of aerial dogfights. So he brought that into science fiction, and it was, it was pretty fucking awesome. He always wanted to do Red Tails. He he had been talking about Red Tails, if I remember right, since the uh, release. The yeah, since the since the, re- the release of Return of the Jedi. So, so I'm glad it happened. Now, and before this, we did have another Tuskegee Airmen film by HBO in the 90s, if memory serves me right, because it had Lawrence Fishburne. With Hugo Jr. in it. Yes. And, and, and Malcolm Jamal Warner. Theo was up in the piece. And, yeah. <laughs> and that one wasn't bad, but that was more of an origin story, whereas this one drops you right into the action. As far as criticism goes, because I had I had a few criticisms, but I like the like, fact there's things I could pick out, but yeah. like I don't nothing. There was nothing where I walked out like, oh, I'm so angry at that scene. Like there's little things, but like nothing huge for me. But oh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. And I'm and I'm the same way. There's nothing like, well, I was salty, and I'm going to spoil alert. Um, when uh, when lightning died, 
Oh, I was pissed. But I mean, I saw it coming. I, I thought that was a very well done death, though. Like that was a very old school, like heroic death. And that and that goes back to the movies of the fifties. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so a character like Lightning, who finally has something to live for, makes the ultimate sacrifice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it, and it makes the character of uh, Martin Julian, aka Easy, finally stop drinking because there was that issue between Easy. There's there's this issue or like this conflict between Easy and Lightning, the entire film. You know, Lightning's you know the brash pilot that wants to do things his way. Easy is the leader. You know, he's the flight leader. He's the one that runs the show. But you know, he's in the military. He's he's you know he's he's part of the Tuskegee Airmen. He studied law. Feels that he ha- he hasn't lived up to his father's expectations. And the only way that he can curb he can curb all these problems that he has is to drink. And so. But you have this like friendship slash conflict between Easy and Lightning, which you know, which I like. But like, and yeah, we all saw the death of Lightning coming. You know what I mean? But, but like, but I was still salty that Lightning died, even though I knew it was coming. <laughs> you know what I mean? I knew it was yeah. coming, but I was still salty about it. But I want to go to Cuba Gooding Jr. Okay, the role he played, he fit the role perfectly. He had the look down. Okay, he had the look down to a science, and I was cool with that. You know, he had the pipe. <laughs> you know, he had the pipe. Everything. Headed down to a science. But my problem is, is that the role he played, anybody could have played. That yeah, was that was I can see that. That was my problem. Because he really The thing is he has such a great opening scene, like when he's giving that speech. And then once you see that like, you know, then we go to see Terrence Howard's character. Yeah. And he's just so much more badass. You know? Like and he kinda you kinda like, why do we even really need this other character so much? See, exactly. That was my problem. Like you said, he could have just been somebody that had that one speech and then we don't really talk to but because he's Cuba Gooding Jr., you know he's not as big a star as he used to be, he's still someone of note. So we have to keep giving him some screen time. Yeah, but the thing is just like he was just there, you know? Yeah, but Cuba can act though. That's the thing. He can actually act. And so that's why I was really surprised why his character was so two-dimensional. Because the way, because like you said, uh, Terrence Howard's character is... Which more- I was so happy about because I really like Terrence Howard, but he's been in crap for like the last however many years. But I thought this was a real, like if people wanted to see like, oh, this is why we like this guy so much. I thought he did a great job in this. Yeah. Like, I thought he stole the movie. Yeah, he so. played um, Colonel A.J. Bullard. And the thing about him playing Bullard is, see, and this is the whole thing with Cuba playing a major stance and... And Howard playing Bullard, it's like this. Bullard had all the speeches, okay? It's like Bullard had all the speeches. Gooding had nothing. Like Gooding's character of Major Stance had nothing. So it's like every time I knew Cuba Gooding, Cuba Gooding Jr. was going to be on screen, he wasn't really going to have anything to say outside of the beginning of the film, okay? But anytime I knew Terrence Howard was going to be on the screen, I knew he was going to have that speech. Not a wasted second screen time right exactly and, and and don't get me wrong that's cool because it has to serve yeah, I, I thought it was great i just like i thought it was kind of a shame like, i agree with you it was a shame because it undercut gooding's role a lot yeah because it was like i mean that first scene you really thought oh he's gonna be like tough ass general like it's like that never happened <laughs> yeah exactly that's what and that's what i wanted to see that's what i really wanted to see and i, I didn't get that and that's why I was salty because he was just always that dude just standing there and sitting there or up in the tower with that one dude that's about to fire the flare gun. And I'm like, that's all y'all gave him? Really? So that's why, you know, that's why I was a little, like I said, a little upset about that. With, with Terrence Howard's character, I was cool with it. I was fine with it. I expected the speeches. I expected that. 
because once again, this is the type of movie where you're dealing with historical matter, but it also deals with race. So you have to have somebody that's de- that's there to give those speeches. Okay, so I expected that, and I was fine with that. Yeah, one one of the like if that if this was a movie from the fifties. That one line of dialogue about the suit, and he's like, the suit is the only thing I ever said. That would be a classic line. Yes. That, this day. that, that was a great piece of dialogue. Yes, it was, because even the people that I saw it with, like, I was at the smaller movie theaters, like the movie tavern, and it was crowded. And this was like the second week, this is during the second week of the, sh- of the, well, of the movie. I saw movie. it just today in like a matinee, mm-hmm. and it was like, there was like 30, 40 people in there. Yeah. It's pretty goddamn good for a Tuesday, you know, in a movie that's been out for a couple of weeks. Yeah, exactly. And then like in, from the theater I saw it, and it was a pretty good crowd too. And when Terrence Howard said that line, all these people started clapping. And like, you know, and this is like, and the audience was, you know, pretty much, it was just like, there were three black people in the audience. Cause like I was like one of the last people in. It was me and there this this you know, then this couple. And then all the rest you know, just 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 white folks was cool, no worries. But when he when he said that line, like folks just started clapping. And I was just like, Wow. I was like, This movie's really like touching people. But even when the movie ended, I get up and I'm like, you know what? I enjoyed this. There were like people crying, dude. And I'm not bullshitting you. I'm being My dead dad when fucking lightning went down. Like, and they show a thing where it goes to, like, um, you know, the girl he was going to marry and stuff. Yeah. My dad pulls, like, a fucking, like, handkerchief out of his uh, jacket. He's like, fucking cry. Cried the whole way home, I think. <laughs> yeah, dude. And my dad is, like, fucking, like, old, like, he's, like, almost in his 70s. Like, he's ultra conservative to a certain degree. But, you know, kind of a hard ass at times. But I don't, for certain, like, war movies and stuff like that, when he saw that, that was, like, fucking just broke down. It was, it was, it was a nice moment, actually. But. Yeah. For $53 million, yeah, a lot of it was spent on the special effects, on the dogfights, which were great, by the way. Do you think, casting-wise, because I want to get back to another cast member, too. Um, actually, two more. Um, well, I should say, the thing I really like, too, is, um, well, Anthony Hemingway, I should say, was the director of the movie. Right. Um, and he was, um, he's mostly known for TV, um, but he was a, a producer, and he directed a lot of episodes of two of my favorite shows, The Wire and Treme, mm-hmm. uh, which are both David Simon, um, you know, created programs. And I like that he brought the cast of The Wire with him to the show. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that, but like there was a whole bunch, like like Andre Royo was the guy who worked on the um the guy who worked on fixing the planes and Method Man as well. He was in uh, you know he was in the Wire as well. Uh, Tristan Wilde, Michael B. Like you know he a lot of the cast was from the Wire. So yeah. I thought it was cool because a lot of those guys also they get a lot of those guys get typecast and they've been playing drug dealers and like you know like you know well Tristan Wilde I think is on Beverly Hills not the new 90210 so he's kind of broken the typecasting a bit but like I thought it was nice for all these guys I thought you know to get to show that they can do other stuff so mm-hmm. I thought that was also I really like that about it too now do you think that because of the budget only being 53 million dollars that I'm not saying that you had to get names bigger than than Terrence Howard or Cuba Gooding Jr but because of that 53 million dollar budget they couldn't get bigger names? Well, I mean, I think, though, if they'd gotten bigger, bigger names, it might have overshadowed the project a bit, though. Okay. Okay. Like, oh, if Denzel Washington is playing, you know, like, Terrence Howard's part or, you know, and Morgan Freeman or whatever is, like, you know, like, it would have been, I, I think then it's just, I think, 
actually the fact that they went with so many people who aren't unknowns but like are not known to the mass public so much i think it added a bit more of like that kind of I don't know, that, that kind of do-it-yourself, kind of fuck-you attitude to the whole project that I think in the back of Lucas's head, a bit of that is what they're going for. It's just like, what is this like renegade project that came out of nowhere? Like, I think if it was a bunch of people you know, like, I think it would have been... I don't think it, the movie would be quite the same way. I think you're really able to focus on a lot of these, especially the you know the younger actors, on just being those characters, not so much as oh here's this guy playing this character. And I and I, res- and I respect that. I I remember like around here uh, talking with some people around around where I live when the movie you know was about to come out, they were upset about like you know like well, why is Method Man in it? Why is so and so in it? And I'm like listen, I was like once again. I was like, you can't go by Soul Plane with Method Man. I was like, and you don't even know how big his role is. So you really got to let that shit go. And I mean, and Method Man's role was that of a uh, of a um, you know a mechanic. It wasn't even that big of a role. And then the but thing very different from anything he'd done. Exactly. So. And, and 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 I was once again fine with it. I was I was fine with it because for a while I didn't you know I didn't even really pay any attention to the fact that it was him. But I will say it took me three fourths of the movie to finally get used to Neo with a southern drawl and chaw in his mouth. <laughs> I kind of like that, though. I don't know. <laughs> no, here's the thing, okay? Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like, I, I wasn't buying it at all until the scene where the white Air Force officers let them into their club, you know, to drink and whatnot, because, you know, they, they stayed with the Air Battalion the whole time. They didn't lose a plane. And they said, because like before that, there was the obligatory nigger get out of here scene earlier in in the movie because Lightning went into the club and everybody gave him a hard time because they said that these guys weren't, you know, Tuskegee Airmen are not pilots. So then later on, you know, the, the white Air Force officers say, thank you, blah, 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 blah. You have that obligatory scene where we, you know, we share and learn our differences because we all knew that scene was coming. Okay, you can't have a movie dealing with race without the obligatory, you know, race relation stuff. But I bought Neo during that scene where he's talking to the white officer about because like this white officer says, listen, you know, what do you guys prefer to be called colored or Negro? And they all and all the pilots of the Tuskegee Airmen that, you know, that that flight crew said Negro, you know, not colored. And then Neo broke down you know, the reason why they preferred the word Negro over colored. And when, and like, if you, if you go in, like anybody's listening to this, if you go see that movie, you hear that, you hear that speech, you'll understand why I caught Neo right there. I was like, okay, he sold me right there because what he said was pretty touching, you know? And I don't know if you remember what he said. Oh, what about, you know, you get sick, you turn yellow. Yeah. 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 That was, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, when you get sick, you turn yellow. When you get envious, you turn green. When you get mad, you turn red, but you want to call us colored. You know, you know, and he's like, and you call us colored, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, that was a good line. And like the thing was, is that that scene right there, he caught it. As far as the acting goes, he caught it. And after everything after that, he caught it. But before that, I wasn't buying him. So, but like I said, he got better as the movie went along. <laughs> I, I do have issues with the film as a whole. It's not perfect, but I don't think it's as bad as a lot of people make it out to be. I think it's it's again not even just we're talking about the race issue but the war issue like i think people also forget like there's you know war didn't mean what it means today like i think that's a hard like to betray people as as going into a war like as an enjoyable thing as is is so foreign 
to like a man, much bunch of you know younger people going to see this today. I imagine it would be hard to swallow. I remember there was a, there was a quote um, a long time ago where um, oh, Christopher Walken was talking about Deer Hunter, and he was saying like you know again like he would he wouldn't even know how to approach making a movie like that today. Um, you know, or, you know, how he used to make movies before that about war, like kind of like this one. You're saying like, you know, it wasn't a thing. People were proud to serve. They enjoy like a lot of it was also let me go and see the world. Like, let me get out of here. Like, this was my ticket out of here, my ticket to be individual, to be myself, to go out on my own, to explore the world, to find, to be my own man, to find my inner. Like, that's what you did. Like, that's what you know, serving was all about. And like, you see all these characters, like they, the thing they most want to do is go, like the most dangerous shit, the thing people would be like, I cannot imagine going to, they were just like, I want to do that. Cause that, that's where the action is. That's where the fun is. And then it's, and again, they fought wars. They weren't bad wars. Like there was, you know, again, there was, there was shit behind the scenes that, you know, we find out today, like, Oh, there was reasons why things happened. But like the, you know, the, the reason why we're, they were going into world war two was a positive reason, you know, it was a reason anybody can get behind. And it's like, I think like, again, like that is such a culture shock. I think that's another reason this movie is getting such like, not even but getting so panned. It's like, you know, how dare they show that? How dare they show, you know, war as being this, like, you know, a thing to be proud of. I think that's too. It's a big disconnect in the culture today. And I'm not pro-war or anything, but I'm just saying it was a different time. That's not how things were. That's not how it was looked at. It was, you know, it was a brave, honorable thing to do to serve. Today, I don't know. Maybe it is, but I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot of. There's a lot of lines to be blurred in that discussion. I really would think by 2012, film-wise, we would be much further than we are right now. You you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I joke, I joked about this to a friend, and then I explained myself right afterwards, but I said, if this film, instead of it being Red Tails, if it was Tyler Perry's Red Tails, (laughs) it would have made 55 million opening weeks. Hey, studios don't fund Tyler Perry movies either, man. Lionsgate does. Well, Lions- no, he, yeah, those are independent films. He fun- finances. That's those. right. Lionsgate distributes them. Yes, but that was the thing George Lucas brought up too. He was like, you know, unless you're making a top pair, and they stopped. It's like, actually, you know, they don't fund those either. So even the guy, the most successful black guy, that's a writer director, still is an independent film. It still doesn't do it himself. And and then the thing is, is that like, and my friend was like, man, that's cold. I was like, listen, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going dog. I'm not dogging on Tyler Perry because I was like, I understand what he's doing. Now I get it. I don't now. like his stuff, but I respect him because of what he, you know, like the fact that he's they they told him no when he went. I respect anybody that does that. And we'll see. Here's my thing. Okay, this is what Tyler Perry's going for right now, as far as what I can tell from what I've seen and what I've observed. He basically is going for. He's going for like you know he's going for the church going audience. He's going for like the black Christian, black Southern Baptist, or just Christian and Southern Baptist audience with with a lot of the Medea movies. He's also going for the family audience with these movies as well. Okay, and then those are the Medea movies. Then you have the movies like Why Did I Get Married and Why Did I Get Married Too. Those go toward you know, I don't know because like, I can't really call those chick flicks or relationship. Flicks. I really don't know what to call those. But those also hit those same audiences that I just mentioned. Plus it. 
also reaches other audiences too. And this just doesn't reach black people. It also reaches white people and people of other ethnicities because they go watch it too, okay? You, you can tell that by the opening box office receipts, all right? So, and he's been doing this for a while. And the thing is, is that you're, I think you're about to start to see, he's like, listen, I've been giving these people this stuff. A lot of this has been based off of plays that I did for the longest time. And I'm giving, this, I'm giving these people this stuff but eventually, I'm going to slowly trickle in stuff that I re- not saying that the stuff he's done is that is not what he wanted to do, but other things. Like he's got a movie coming out this year called Good Deeds, which is like far removed from what I can tell. Far Isn't rem- he working on a uh, spy movie or something? Well, he's supposed to be the new Alex Cross. Yes, yeah. So, so he's thinking supposed- people are like bagging on it. I'm like, hey, that could be interesting. It could be terrible, but it could be interesting. Well, the thing is, is that Alex Cross is supposed to be a younger guy anyway. It's like I didn't mind Morgan Freeman playing Alex Cross, but the main reason he played Alex Cross compared to Ashley, you know, next to Ashley Judd is because there was the rumor going around that the studio was scared to put a younger black man with Ashley Judd. Because that uh, that they might think she's she's trying to rape her the entire film. We got to sell a hero here. (laughs) See, don't get me started. Don't get me started. But that but that's that kind of rationale that was brought about. But like I said, there was something. Oh yeah, I was trying to explain because like my like I said before, my dad loved the movie. Like he he can't he can't see many movies because he gets like so mad about everything all the time because like he likes stuff like this like where there's a bunch of people it's a hero story and stuff like that's the kind of stuff he likes to see um he doesn't like you know a lot of like they make war movies today they're all like cynical pieces and stuff like that like he likes this kind of stuff and he feels like there's not enough of it he really liked the movie a lot and when i was telling him i told him the whole story about like oh how you know lucas tried to get a funded for 20 and he's like and i was like yeah and the studios they won't they won't like green light a um they won't green light like an all-black cast for a war movie or an action movie you know and he was just like shocked like, couldn't believe it but he was like but they green light that fucking battleship crap we saw it <laughs> and i just thought of you and i just started laughing. <laughs> that tr- how bad was that that's what it is it's just fucking transformers basically i don't know yep. oh battleships versus transformers yeah oh. Literally seeing that, like again, that's what I'm saying. Like people watched that trailer, and then watched Red Tails, and still had the nerve to say Red Tails was really bad. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Well, like, well, the thing is, like, and some people, some people refuse to see the movie after Fox released that second trailer with the dubstep music or that second commercial with the dubstep music. They're like, oh, that's just blasphemy. I'm not gonna go see that. I was just like, damn. And I'm like, and I can understand why that might turn some people off because it's like that has nothing to do with the historical aspect of the Tuskegee Airmen. But to me, it's like. It's just a commercial trying to get kids hyped to go see some dog fights. So, all right, whatever, dude. No, but I honestly thought that, like I said, 2012, we would be so much further than we are right now that we are still having to talk about the fact that studios are still afraid to cast movies with an all-black cast and that George Lucas had to pull $53 million out of his own pocket and buy prints and pay for advertising to get this made. And it's going to turn profit. That's not that's not an issue. George is happy, and because of the way it's been, you know, faring in the box office, there might be more Tuskegee Airmen films because, like George, has been talking with Spike Lee and some other cats about doing either an origin story for Tuskegee Airmen or a movie after that takes place after Red Tails, which would be great. I would love to see them, but I don't know if that, you know, I don't know if it's going to happen. We'll see. Like, I guess what's messed up to me is is that George Lucas tells the national public that Hollywood won't deal with an all a film won't won't like fund a film with an all black cast but if spike lee says it spike lee's being militant that's my problem 
because Spike Lee talked about this at Sundance about his new movie Red Hook that will be coming out this year. And that's why that's why I like, you know, and I don't I you know, I don't agree with everything Spike says, but there's a lot of stuff I do agree with him on. But he was being honest when he said, you know, when he says something like in the regards of what Lucas said, it's being militant. And then they try to malign Spike. But when George Lucas says it, it's oh, oh, there's a problem. Oh my God. That, I, that wasn't the response I heard so much to Lucas though. It was a lot of just like who cares like what he says or like not believing him, like I don't know. Didn't I? Th- there was a lot of like you know negative reaction to what he said too. I don't know. I know what your po- I know what your point is. I'm yeah. just saying like Lucas didn't get a resounding like oh that's fucked up. It was literally just who cares what he says like you know whatever. Probably not true. Right, and and I get why you know why Lucas gets flack. And, you know I get I get why Lucas gets flack. I think he gets too much flack. I'm like yeah look I know the dude Ch- has changed the original Star Wars trilogy twenty times. I don't care anymore. That shit don't bother me. I'm like... I, I actually get a kick out of it. I, I think it's hilarious. To, like, to, me, I, <laughs> to, to, to me now, it's more of a study. It's, it's more of an artistic study than anything else now. I, I, can, I, can, make, I can make a valid argument as to why he... I'm not going to do it here, but like why he keeps like doing that. Like I, 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 I have pondered it and wondered if it's actually an artistic statement that he's saying about that work. Not just, oh, he's crazy and keeps updating them or if it's just... If he has a point to it, I, I kind of, I don't know, I'm almost on a, I don't know, maybe I'll write about it someday, but it's like, I, I'm like, I don't know, I think there's something more to that, why he keeps doing that. I just, I let, I let all that go. I don't have the, the fanboy hatred for Lucas. It's like, look, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of episode one, but he made that movie for a different, for a different generation and a different audience because you can't, you can never get me behind Jar Jar Binks, okay? And even he realized that in episode two, he was like, you know, a lot of folks are salty and mad about Jar Jar Binks. I'll make Jar Jar responsible for the Clone Wars. And everybody laughed about it because that was that was his way of saying, yo, I'm sorry, y'all. I ain't mean to do that. But, you know, Lucas got a lot of shit, got a lot of shit from the you know people that saw the prequels. Although these are the same people that saw the shit 15 times. These are the same people that bought the movies twice. That's the thing, times. too. Like, there's a trailer for episode one 3D. All the people bitching about Lucas are going to go fucking see it anyway. Right. So what are you fucking complaining about? Get over it. Right. Exactly. Exactly, and it's just like yo, like, cause my wife was like, "You want to go see episode one?" Uh, you know, cause she knows I'm a Star Wars fan. I was like, I was like, that's all right. I would only want to see the Darth Maul lightsaber fight anyway. And guess what? We got that here on DVD, and we got a good TV. I'm good. When Revenge of the Sith hits 3D, cause I really can't see 3D movies because like I gotta have to wear glasses on top of glasses. Me too. So and, that's why I can. Uh, you know, but it, you know, stuff. These movies also be available in 2D. So when when Sith come, when Revenge of the Sith comes back, or A New Hope, or Empire, or Re- Return of Jedi comes back, I'm going to the movie theater. And the reason why, and they're like, oh, you're just a bitch to Lucas. Like, no, it has nothing to do with that. I truly love watching A New Hope and Empire in a movie theater. Because those are movie theater movies. There are some movies that are on the movie screen right now that are not movie theater movies. They honestly, I could watch them at home. But when I watch Star, when I watch A New Hope, that is a that's that's supposed to be on a big screen. When I watch Empire, Empire is supposed to be on a big screen. But a lot of these other movies I've watched over the years, I can give a damn. I care less if they were, if they were at a movie theater. I could watch them at home. So it has like a different it has a different connection to me. I 
think it's funny too. Like people just forget. Like Lucas directed like THX and American Graffiti, you know, which is nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and you know, Star Wars, the first one, was nominated for ten Academy Awards. That would never happen again. You know, like I'm just saying. Like again, like I don't, which in itself is a massive achievement. The very first Star Wars movie. I just think it's funny. Like again, like all that stuff just doesn't count anymore. Yeah. Never that stuff never happened. Well, because we all have because we have selective history. We all use selective history, and that's bad, bad. But going back to going back to Red Tails, my whole thing before going to the movie theater, my thing was this: as long as the movie is better than this nineteen seventies, this nineteen seventies version of I used to, as a kid, I used to call it Black Mash, and it and the show was called Rollout. It was on uh, CBS, and it was in the seventies. I saw it in the eighties because they syndicated it. It was only on for like one season. It basically was set in France during World War World War Two. It was based like off this old fifties movie. It basically highlighted uh, supply drivers, uh, the U.S. Third Army's uh, Red Ball Express. That's what it was about. Yeah, and so I watched that because to me that was like the black version of Mash. As a kid, I watch it now. I'm like, man, eh, it's, it's okay. It's not that good. This movie could be better than, than Rollout. I'm happy, and it was. So I was good. But I think that's that's a big point. I think as to some of the aesthetic and why. Lucas and, and Hemingway and um, also yeah probably should mention too uh, Aaron McGrudder mm-hmm. you know creator of Boondocks who wrote a pass on this script uh, John Ridley another like you know so there was a lot of a lot of people of note that worked on this as well but yeah. again people wonder why wasn't why didn't they focus more on you know the the racism aspect it's like well again they had it there they don't ignore it but it's like again like how much more the more you hammer it home and people know people know like you know the people we've heard we've heard the story a million times isn't it more powerful if these guys are heroes and not victims and it's like you have to think like how many black like how many movies are there like black kids can watch where there's a film where there's a, just a bunch of black heroes like like when you were growing up did you have a whole look you had to go find some movie like for, like you know like there was not any white kid grow up he sees 130 you know 200 300 movies where there's just white people being heroes it's like now we have a movie you know black kids can watch and there's they're just a bunch of black heroes isn't that a great thing like is it, you know and they don't they're not sitting there like you know they're not they're not whining about you know their place they're, they're sitting there and they're making people make people respect them proving them wrong like isn't that more like you don't you don't see that a lot in society in general anymore no like it's like to me i'm just like i don't know it was a very uplifting film like well, isn't that just a good thing is it every nice every now and then we just have a nice piece of entertainment you know i sound like i'm not to sound like my dad here but i'm just saying you know it's like <laughs> i couldn't help but i was like you know, i see so much and again i i see i saw like 60 movies last year and again i'm not a guy i don't hate everything that comes out i enjoy most things i go and see but i mean i mean there's not a lot it's something i noticed too when um i keep showing the trailer for this titanic in 3d and again, I was never a huge fan of the movie, but I'm like, you know, there's a reason that movie, like, you know, those kinds of movies and like Red Tails, again, is another movie, I guess, that kind of falls into that trope of old Hollywood of, you know, the way they did movies. And it's like, you wonder why the people wonder why that movie is so popular still. And same thing, you know, I mean, people want to hate Cameron for Avatar. Like, I wasn't a huge fan of it, but mm-hmm. like he hits those buttons. There's notes that movies are supposed to hit, you know, certain kinds of movies and then people love them. Like they know they don't care that it's a cliche. They don't care that they've seen. Like you know, it's just if you do it well and you, you just hit people in that right moment, they, they will love. That's what movies are all about. They're all about you know these big story, big epic stories where there's you know a war and there's a love story. You know a love. You know so you know there's a, a death and you know it touches everybody. Like that's what people want to walk away. They want to feel inspired. They want to feel like there's more to life. You know, and it's like that's why I'm kind of this thing I've been kind of looking at lately I was like why every now and then you get a movie like that like a Titanic or and like you know that's 
it just sweeps people and like I, and people try and rationalize it later on and say oh you know it's because of this it's because you know DiCaprio and again that's a, that's a factor you know DiCaprio was huge at the time and it was a different period but I mean again they're going to release it again I'm sure that fucking thing is going to make you know millions of dollars oh you but know? of course <laughs> so again they still, you hear people in the theater like when I see the trailer like oh I gotta see that again it's like so I don't know people love it for a reason you know just because you don't like it you know it doesn't mean that you know it's not there's no reason it works, you know? And I, I felt that in Red Tails, too, where I, I, I put this a little higher to me because I think it had a bit more to say. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like it had it got that mold of what a classic Hollywood film is supposed to do. And, like, what film used to do. It used to make inspire people. And I don't know if there's enough of that anymore. Going back to black heroes in film. Now that you say that, as a kid, I'm like, I'm trying to think. I'd have to watch Shaft and Shaft's big score. <laughs> and and we let, you know, to us, Bruce Lee was black, so we had Bruce Lee movies. <laughs> and then, but then, but seriously, after that, there really wasn't anything. Yes, you had black actors in lead roles. And this is what I'm talking about my childhood in the 80s. And like the early '90s, I'm talking about before the ad, the you know before the Will Smiths and stuff like that. Because like not even Denzel Washington was doing like heroic stuff. He was playing you know actual roles. And even when he his one of his, one of his early action films is Virtuosity with the young Russell Crowe, which you know like I know ain't the best movie in the world. But use a cliche saying it is what it is. I remember my teenage years when Meteor Man came out. Robert Townsend, a black superhero movie? Are you fucking kidding me? With a loaded black cast? Um, and not only just actors and actresses, but also musical, you know, musical people being actors. Luther Vandross is a damn gangster. <laughs> a gang shootout between, with gangsters on one side portrayed by Cypress Hill and the others portrayed by Naughty by Nature. But also legitimate actors are in the film t- and actresses are in the film too. And Robert Townsend's essentially playing Black Superman. The movie, once again, has mad issues. I mean, if you if you go back and watch it, it is dated. But to go back and look at that, like for me as a teenager, I was like blown the fuck away. I'm like, you mean to tell me some dude made a movie with an all-black cast dealing with a black Superman? Are you fucking shitting me? I gotta go see it. Yeah, it wasn't the greatest thing in the world, but it was the best I had. That was probably the only window in time where there was stuff like that because it was also Blank Man. Even though it's a comedy, still it was a black superhero. Yeah. Um, you know, you had Steel, which is terrible, but still it's you know a black superhero. See, and then that's you had uh, Shazam or whatever with also oh. with Shaquille O'Neal and like they're not good movies, but still they were they were they were they were things where there was a black hero and that was still uncon up to the nineties to now. Again, like you said, like it's like we haven't really come that far. It's like. It really is sad sometimes when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Like you got to grasp at Meteor Man. <laughs> like oh, there was an example. <laughs> yeah, there was an example where they did it right. You know, it's like, does anybody really remember Meteor Man? Like it's kind of a shame. Like there was no, there was no movie in there that no. was the equivalent of like you know Richard Donner Superman or something. You know, right, right, right. And it's it's, it's jacked up. And see, I wish you wouldn't have brought up Steel and Kazam. I really wish you wouldn't have brought those up. <laughs> Because, see, do you understand why I get so, like, pissy at Warner Brothers sometimes? Yeah, I know, I know. Steel. There's a pattern. There's a pattern. I'm not going to deny it. <laughs> I like to just believe better of them for some reason. I don't know. I know. And, see, but, Joy, that's why I love you, man. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's why I love you. But, do you see, but once again, you understand why I'm reaching at these straws. So, like, when a film like Hancock comes out, 
and the first half is kick ass and the second half is what the fuck i get disappointed but i think that, that that's kind of why though i get i get i get ticked off at will smith sometimes though because a lot of this stuff is stuff he could have changed you know he could have like again the original hancock script hancock script is actually pretty fantastic and that's what you see in the first half of that movie and it's like whatever the fuck happened in that second half i have no fucking clue mm-hmm. he's make that up on the spot it's like literally just like a completely different movie but it's like will smith has enough power to say like hey keep it but he chooses not to do that it's like everything's always got to be i know you notice in all his movies whenever he takes a risky role and i got i'm gonna get a lot of i got a lot of shit for this the last time i said this let's just keep my mouth shut (laughs) people do not like will smith being criticized i noticed that Uh, so And I like the dude. That's what I think is a good actor. I just kind of wish he would be in like, you know, great films, not just like, oh, the first half was good films. It goes to this thing of as far as action films go, like if you notice, like Denzel's doing a lot of action movies now. And it's like, how come not granted times change, people change, whatever. But how come there aren't like any young black action stars? There aren't really any action stars anyway. Right? Well, I, I know, I know. The only one is Jason Statham. Yeah, pretty much. That's the only technical, ac- technically a- action star because yeah, that's what he does. And he's proud of it. And I like Jason Statham. There's never really been that young black action star. You know what I mean? It's like they always, like, it's like society waits for like a lot of these black actors to get older and then they feel more comfortable with them. And now, hey, go do your action movie. Hey, go have fun, you know, because they're older. These characters, you know, these 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 um, actors are older, or actresses are older. And then so then that means they're more mature. So the roles they'll have that will be mature, and they won't be anti this or anti that. I'm like, I don't understand that. But I'll be the first one to tell you. You better please fucking believe I'm gonna go see Safe House when it comes out. Also, oh, why? Because hey, come on, I got no church in the wild in the trailer. Exactly, so. that gets me so damn hype. You don't understand. Best song ever, man. <laughs> Gets me so hype, and just just for the simple fact, I get to see Denzel Washington punk Ryan Reynolds on many occasions. Movie though that that, that I, I when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, this is gonna be new Tony Scott, and it wasn't Tony Scott, and that has me a bit worried because I don't know who this director is. I, I have to go see it, and I also love those promotional posters. Since no one is safe, and it's got like this menacing picture of like Denzel Washington's face on it, because that it, that it's like crossed or whatever, like his, his fingers crossed together. Or something. Mm-hmm. Because it's got like this real menacing look about, and like it, you know, it's this menacing look that like some people like that have issues dealing with black masculinity, they're like kind of afraid of. That poster summarizes all that right there. You got like a brother the white with this look on his face, and you don't know what he's gonna do with his hands crossed and with the words "No one is safe" on it. I know I'm getting a little deep right now, but <laughs> but I was just like, I got starting to sound like me with your uh, with your uh, like. It's like when I was fucking giving my interpretation of the puffy videos. <laughs> You don't know. It's just that's I just I just see that. So, but I, I want to go see. I know folks on this podcast right now listen. Like, what the fuck is Sean gotten into today? <laughs> Somebody must have pissed him the fuck off. He is just going everywhere right now. We've said how we feel about Red Tails. I say overall, we'd say Red Tails. We really enjoy. Yes, right? yes. Say. And and I'll be honest with you, when it comes out on Blu-ray, that movie I will buy. Me too. Not gonna lie, I'll buy. Now, closing out, I want to talk about Haywire. I'm disappointed, not in the movie, but I'm more disappointed in like the general public for not seeing this movie. I don't know. Maybe it was because of the way relative relativity media spun the film, how they sold the film. 
this is a straight up spy movie and I loved every last minute of it. Have you seen it? Yeah, I love I liked it a lot. I love this film. I mean, I would go pay money right now. I would get off this podcast, but go pay money right now to see it again in a theater. And you know me, I don't pay to go see movies twice. I like the fact that it wasn't the typical Angelina Jolie, typical Mila Jojovich. No offense to those ladies. Do what you got to do. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I eat a sandwich. <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, I if this was an actual movie movie. To me, again, it's another case of, though, another thing, though, where I think this movie was very much like a throwback to like the 70s like steve mcqueen movies like bullet it looked like it was like bullet like basically here here's gina carano as steve mcqueen in bullet like that's kind of very similar to what the movie is there you go that's a per- that's a perfect summary yes but again it's not obvious so again i think an audience doesn't know what to do with it it's like why is this moving so slowly why is there this like jazzy score underneath it yeah and it's like again because it's not so overtly 70s it's just you know it's a little nod to it it's showing oh this is paced like a film from that era would be paid like a Yates film. Like I get yeah, Yates was kind of the director cause he did friends of Eddie Coyle as well. They're very, both those movies are They're They're very slowly paced, but then there's these big bursts of action and they all have these very, um, you know, there's very, uh, what's the word I'd use? Very charismatic stars, I guess that yeah. don't need to say a lot. Right. And like, if you look at Gina Carano, she definitely fits into that. And you look at this whole movie, it fits kind of into the, uh, you know, the Yates over from the, you know, from the seventies. Yeah. And, and you know, and you got a cast with Michael Fassbender, Ewan McGregor, Bill Paxton, Antonio Banderas, and he, Douglas. I, yeah, Michael Douglas. And I'll even give Channing, Channing Tatum his props. Even Michael Angarano was uh, was in it. He was the kid in the car, yep. which I thought was really cool. Great cast. And but the, here's the thing I loved about it, and this goes back to the thing you're talking about with movies from the seventies and he, movies from the seventies as far as um, fights go. I saw literally every punch, kick. There was no cross cutting film cuts, no film tricks and shit. I got to see fights. Well, have you read? Have you read the interview with? Uh, this is called. I can't remember what website. Maybe it was on the. Uh, God, I'll find. I have it. I have it saved on my on my computer somewhere. There's a long interview with Soderbergh, the director. Yeah. And he talks about about that. Like he never made an action movie up to this point. He's actually getting ready to retire. He's just going to do a couple more movies. Um, and he said like he only had the idea because he saw uh, Gina Carano fighting on TV and said, you know, she's so interesting. I'd like to make a movie with her. And like just called her up and they kind of made a movie. That's like basically how this whole thing came together. Yeah. Um, but he said like, you know, his approach to action, like he was so like how, how action has been approached in me in all cinema, like the last 10 years is not like been his cup of tea. And like he said, he said exactly what you said. Like he's like, you know, things can move fast and they can, but I, I got to see everything. Cause I don't have a point of like, I need that point. I need to have a sense of where I am in the scene. If you just throw me in a scene to me, he's like, he's like, some people can do it well, but like, there's a difference. Like some, some of the, you know, quick cuts and stuff you can tell it's just a guy doesn't know what he's doing. And some, some are doing it for an artistic effect. And he said like, I think at one point he was supposed to, um, there was one of the guys they wanted to take over the born uh, series. Mm. And he said, you know, he wouldn't do it because he's like that. The style they do is the opposite of what he does. So he's like, he's like, it would just look like haywire and everybody would hate it. I think he'd probably be right. Cause like that fan base is so specific on how they like those born movies to be. But I should send it to you because he talks about every detail of how they did that action. Yeah, he's, he's very, like, I thought it was interesting. So I'd like to see more people, you know, use that style because I thought it was, uh, you know, haven't seen a film, an action film with that style in a long time. I'm very used now to, you know, quick cuts and everything. Yeah. And then that, you don't understand how happy that made me when I watched it. And to all the listeners, 
Listen, Gina Carano fights Magneto in a hotel room. You need to watch it just for that, just for that alone, just for that alone, and just understand it's not five minutes of dialogue, fifteen minutes of action, five minutes of dialogue, fifteen minutes of action. This is an actual spy film. There's no camp. Gina Carano was badass, so badass that like I had to like direct message Joey via Twitter, <laughs> and I was like, Gina Carano should play Wonder Woman. And Joey hit me back. I was like, Fuck that. She should be Electra in real life. <laughs> I still stand by that statement. Because <laughs> like, all these years, you know, I always heard Frank Miller talk about like, why he created Elektra. And you know, I, I, the woman he always described as like, I never saw that woman in real life. Who's like really sexy and attractive, but is so powerful and has that thing. You know, and I saw Gina Carano in this movie and I was like, that is fucking Elektra. That's what he was talking about all this time. Never, like, never seen a woman like that before. And yeah. I was like, she would be perfect. Like, I don't think they're making any Daredevil movies anytime soon with Elektra, but still, it's like, you know, ah, perfect. She, she literally is Elektra to me. Mm-hmm. Like, she jumped off the page. But I like that too in the movie. Again, have you seen the new Mission Impossible? Yes, I have. I was, I loved, I thought it was great. Yeah, so did I, yes, yes. I was watching that so much, I was like, yo, Tom Cruise really should have played every superhero. Like, this guy, was, this guy should have been Superman. Like, you fuck, he stands there in front of like a fucking, he's run, out running a fucking dust cloud whatever sand cloud man he outruns a fucking sand cloud and like you just stand there you're just like i will follow whatever that guy says whatever he does like, he could have been an awesome superman he could have been a cool batman like, he could have been every superhero he could have been iron Man. could have been every superhero i felt the same with gina carano i felt like they were making a running joke about that in haywire because yeah. like the, one of the cops said that to her or whatever like what are you wonder woman like i said there's the lecture scene too she jumps over all the new york city rooftops kind of like in like in the old daredevil comics there's a scene where she's dressed in like black widow's costume and fights on the beach it's like she could have been every superhero yeah. yo yo <laughs> when she came running out of nowhere on the beach i went off because wow. like you know you and mcgregor's just like walking like you know my life is almost over blah 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 and then out of the corner of the screen you just see gina carano come out from nowhere to start running i was like she is about to whoop somebody's ass i cannot wait that's another one i will buy that on blu-ray as soon as it comes out no ifs ands or buts that's being bought but yeah, I, I just had to talk to somebody about Haywire. I had to. And I figured if I'm going if I'm going to do that, I'm talking about our red, ta- red tails, I got to talk to Joey about Haywire because I had to hear his side too. I'm surprised though. I guess I'm, I shouldn't be shocked because it didn't do that well in, in January. But like that was supposed to come out, I think, over the summer, uh, yeah. Haywire. But they, they, they you know, cut, cut its schedule and they just threw it out in January. But I was like, that—that's a summer action movie. If there—if there ever was one, exactly. You know? Yeah, relative uh, relativity dropped the ball on that one big time. And they're still a young studio, so young studios are going to make mistakes. But they really fucked up on that one. Um, now, granted, the the positive thing about it is that it only cost twenty three million to make. Problem is, is that in two weeks, I think it's in the in its first two weeks, it's made about a total of fourteen million. Has it opened overseas yet? No, not yet. That's I think what, it's one that could do really well. Um, uh, especially like in Japan and stuff, I could see this doing really well because yeah. there's not a lot of dialogue in it. It's a lot of fights. Yeah, you yeah. know, like I could see, it, like I could see that being a hit over there. There's I a, could be wrong. But. There's a lot of silence in the movie, and I think your average movie viewer doesn't know how to handle that. Same with Mission Impossible as well. Mission Impossible Four was also very much like a silent film. Um, yeah, yeah, but see, there's but there's enough camp. There's enough like you know over the top stuff to make you not think about it though. I guess, yeah. But again, I, I, that was the only thing that sucked when seeing uh, Mission Impossible 4 was I had such a bad audience when I went to see it. 
Because I was like the only one that was like, this is so great. And like the audience was just like quiet, didn't say a fucking thing. And then at the end, a guy next to me just got sucked. I was like, what? Come on. <laughs> you outran a fucking sand cloud. <laughs> People need to see. I th- Joey, I think that might be your line of the year. He, <laughs> he outran a fucking sand cloud. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to put that in the books. I'm going to put that in the books. All right. Before we go, Joey, can you tell the people where they can find all your podcasts on the internet? Currently only doing one show at the moment. Uh, That's the Chemical Box. It's a comic book show I do with uh, my friend Alec Berry, who probably most of your listeners should know. Um, He's been on this show before. Uh, It's chemicalbox.blogspot.com. I also recently started a uh, blog as well, but I've got some posts coming up. I got my top 20 movies of 2011 posts coming up there and uh it's called uh it should go, go to pushpauseandwave.blogspot.com and that that's where you can find that now as far as the chemical box goes like you know because you've had this resurgence of the chemical box is this more of a bi-weekly thing a weekly thing or is- well the thing that says is we were doing it weekly for a while and now alec went back to school and like he's got a really bad schedule so we're kind of just doing it once or twice a month now at least until like uh we get to like the spring summer so but uh we we got you know episodes will come out i can guarantee that i couldn't guarantee that last year (laughs) (laughs) no problem dude we gotta go i'm hoping you know maybe in the next month or two we'll be back to you know but bi-weekly is probably that that sounds about right well listen joey seriously man thanks for coming on and helping me talk about red tails and haywire to the people all right no problem man always a joy talking to you And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the HHWLOD Podcast Network and is available at hhwlod.com and is also available via iTunes. And you can still go to pkdmedia.com to get our podcast, check out our form, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, Agents of Cult, and Luke Foster's The Game from the Store for free. If you're on iTunes or our forum board, feel free to leave us a comment, or you can email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard.